Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horror, the fifth column, Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your it's your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle you people make. Wow. And and if you don't get it every week, that isn't my fault. It's your fault. And then when you don't get it any week, he forgets the intro. Um, I'm Camille Foster. I do all kinds of marvelous things at this place called Freethink and also at the Fifth Column. And I'm so happy to be here. It is so wonderful. I've, I've been a little sick, actually. I was under the weather. It wasn't COVID. I was some sort of weird stomach malady, but I've survived. I've, I'm, I'm not, I haven't just survived. I've thrived. I'm better than I was before, which is amazing. I'm in my 40th year going on to 41 and I've yet to peak. I don't know if it's even possible that I will, but there are three men here who can talk to me about that and tell me whether or not wow. it's possible that I is will the ever. Suggestion that's all we'll that talk we've about all today, peaked, actually. but you, Camille? Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Matt, Matt Welch, Reason Magazine. He's back in mm. New York City after his, his sojourn to Europe. This annual trip that he takes with his family. It's wonderful. It's nice to have him back. He looks refreshed. Michael Moynihan is also here. I, I just saw Mr. Moynihan. We, we had a wonderful couple of days <laughs> yeah. in Los Angeles. A remarkable, remarkable evening that he did I don't remember. remember. It did involve a Rolls it, yeah, Royce. We were in a Rolls Royce. Yeah. Um, and we are joined <laughs> by friend of the podcast, newly minted father, Large. Eli Lake, Eli Bloomberg what? in the building. And also, we, we won't get into it because I love Eli like a brother. I do. I genuinely love and adore Eli, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rip him mm-hmm. a new one today because he's, he's all kinds of wrong about this Afghanistan oh, stuff. Oh, I thought we were going to rip him just because he had a kid. No, no. I'm, I'm excited about the kid. I <laughs> yeah. want to talk about Don't it. Don't do it for I procreating. Mean, Eli has that new father fugue state look on his face. You can tell yeah. that he isn't really sleeping. Looks like he peaked. But he's also glowing. <laughs> Eli, congratulations on the new edition. Thank you for joining us again. Uh, thank you. It's great. You know, uh, everybody <laughs> says that it's, but it's really amazing. She, she's new great. edition, which yeah. it's a boy, which you named after Ralph Tresvant. Is that correct? <laughs> no, or... it's a, it's, it's a girl and we named okay. her, uh, Karen Becky privilege. <laughs> <laughs> As um, you should. Yeah. We felt a lot of guilt after last yeah. yeah. So, I really uh, thought if it was a girl, it would be named after Golden Meir, but it yeah. just, well, uh, yeah. you know, boy, Menachem Begin. Uh, Lucy Davidovich, yeah. It's um, it's a deep cut for everybody out there. Um, no, it's uh, it's named after it? my queen's mother, uh, mm-hmm. who, uh, who, who died when we first started dating, like about three oh. and a half years ago. So, That's um, and she's, she's, Beautiful, objectively the cutest baby in the world. Yes, um, and uh, she will not let anybody sleep. But she's <laughs> yeah. the sleep terrorist. Yeah. Yes, Moynihan. I was trying to tell the guys uh, while you were out looking for fresh rails or mm-hmm. like buying a car, or whatever yes. you're doing. Um, Both uh, pulling out entire trees by the roots because they've all been sogged by yeah. Hurricane Henri. Yeah, uh, but that uh, that Eli's doing it all wrong, just like Camille obviously did it, which is that you're supposed to. You're, you're the father. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to sleep. Yeah, yeah that's exactly. the point. That's right. Like you've got. That's a. You're doing an important duty for both mm-hmm. parents. Yeah, by I have. To, I have to smoke sleeping. this weed for the both of us. Okay. Now, <laughs> <laughs> if I don't play this Xbox, no one will. That's, that's right. a lot of pressure on me. Taking one okay? for the team. <laughs> Taking one for the team. It's a damn shame yeah. that people don't appreciate sacrifice yeah. anymore. 
God. So, but but you had this <laughs> child was brought into the world just a couple of days ago, right? I mean, yeah. have we even reached a week. Not even a week. It's a week on Wednesday. We've not reached a week. Yeah. And you're doing the podcast. It's doing the podcast. You know where your priorities are. Yeah. It's first thing. Yeah, first yeah, thing. My yeah. wife is like uh, Eddie's yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. No, 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 All right. That's a fair point. Like in fairness, <laughs> in fairness, Nika was sort of like, really, you got to do. It. I'm like, you know, it's it's it's, it's this a, Afghanistan <laughs> thing is really big. American credibility. I got to talk to these libertarians. Can't leave rap alone. The game needs me. Those are those are hove lyrics, yeah. and Eli lives that truth. And you know what? I'm not mm-hmm. I'm not some dude on MSNBC. When I use rap lyrics to accentuate a point, <laughs> yeah. you get it. This is not me saying. You know, when COVID sees you, you will be in the ICU. <laughs> I see you. That's, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I get it. That's your shit. It's just not working. Wait, did somebody say something on MSNBC? Oh my gosh. Like with someone who was that? Ari. Yeah, Melbourne. Ari Melbourne. Oh, I saw host, host of the I, rap. I turned off the world. Yeah. Um, for like two weeks because I couldn't take it anymore. But I did, by the way, and and, and um, in fairness to myself, I did uh, start this podcast by quoting the Ultra Magnetic MCs, which is that's uh, going back a little bit. Um. But wait, Ari Melber was, what was he referencing? He was talking about COVID. And did he say the N-word? He, he did not. He did not, unfortunately. <laughs> he was talking oh. about COVID and how, how terrible it is. It's lethal. It's a bit like the beef Notorious B.I.G. used to rap about when he said, beef is when your moms ain't safe up in the streets. Beef is when I see you guaranteed to be in ICU. Well, when COVID sees you, you can't end up in ICU. I'm not making light of this. I'm trying to get your attention. Well, that's Potent. why people really are watching cable news these days. <laughs> Potent. That's why it's become, it's really, everyone's, you know, over oh, 100,000 uh, viewers. I do appreciate that our um, friend's uh, guest, sometimes enemy, uh, <laughs> just general hater Glenn Greenwald, has made it a thing where he, he like almost daily posts the numbers from uh, cable news shows and how <laughs> shitty they're doing. I'm like, man, he just really loves this. Just really is enjoying it. He's like, nobody. And then he goes on a long jack about how much he loves Tucker Carlson. But he will be like, this is what MSNBC is doing today. Nobody is watching this garbage. And, you know, I have to admit, I'm also um, kind of happy about that because I periodically, as I saw Camille when I was in L.A. Uh, for the Bill Maher show and I was staying in the hotel, that is the only time I watch cable news because I don't have it at home. And every time I watch it, I am just thoroughly just appalled and disgusted by it. And that's every channel, by the way. That's not uh, anyone in particular. So, so yeah, um, I'm glad that Ari Melper is doing the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, but but not but not Maddow. She's really digging. She's getting at the bottom of the story that Rachel Maddow, because you know, just because Mueller didn't find anything doesn't mean it, it's not there. That's right. I mean, the Russians got to him too. Anyway, I'm just saying you got to you got to carve out the Maddow exception. And she just uh, re-upped for another couple of years. So, hey, uh, as a weekly show, right? Isn't that the thing that she's now going to do a oh, weekly show? Oh, is that right? I think that was the transition. Yeah, she's transitioning to a weekly show because there's not enough news about Russia, so she can only do it <laughs> once a week, where she talks about you know random oligarchs and their connections to random people in the U.S. It's yeah. The corporations, yeah, it's the corporations won't let her tell the truth about Russia. Right, that's the real problem. Um, well. Look, so this week, there's a, a ton of stuff that we could talk about. I mean, we, we've already talked a little bit about Ari, I, but I, I do want to talk about our time in, in um, L.A. a little bit, Moynihan, because that was that was fun. Yeah. And also, we, we got really to fun, hang out yeah. with Donna Brazil for 
like I don't know how many hours. Oh, nice. Like it was, but it was a long time. I, I did a Jesse Jackson impression for her, though. Did you? Yeah, we were talking about Jesse. Jesse, who's in 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 the hospital right now with COVID. Yeah, the COVID. Yeah. His wife has COVID. Both of them. Yeah, yeah. his his grape has certainly turned to a raisin, Eli. Oh, oh my God! Thank you for that reference. But by the way, that is the best. Jesse Jackson, whatever you want to say about him, best political apology of the 20th century. I, so I need to c- confess something here. I have mentioned this speech, and I know it like the Pledge of Allegiance. I know the whole thing now. But I have <laughs> to admit that it was you that turned me on to this maybe like 15 years ago. And, I, and, and it seems like I have it was the vinyl. Be- <laughs> yes. Yes, you do. Okay. Right. So here is the crazy thing. I was like, is this pre-internet? Or do I remember Eli dropping the needle on a Jesse Jackson record? I did. Yes. Wow. That, that exists. The apology exists. is it's, on wax. It's a it's it's a remarkable speech. We all sort of forget it, but in 1984, um, he got a a lot of trouble with uh, my people, the Jewish community, for saying that New York City was Jaime Town, Jaime Town. being very close Don't with Louis Farrakhan. <laughs> Which is an SNL sketch of uh, and, Eddie Murphy singing um, Jaime right, Town. Right. <laughs> when when people were allowed to make comedy. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so he, this is, a, there's two parts of this that are really interesting. One is that for, there was like months where like Jesse Jackson was defiantly not apologizing. And Abe Foxman, who is the former leader of the Anti-Defamation League, like kind of worked on him and befriended him. And over time really got him to sort of understand that this is very offensive to Jewish people. And that's, where we got, and it kind of culminated in this incredible oration where he, you know, that great, that great line of my grape turned into raisin, of my joy bell lost its resonance, blame it to my head, no, yeah, not yeah. to my charge heart. It, charge it to charge my Charge it head. to my head, not, not to, my to my heart. heart. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is a really good line, by the way. It, it's a, he's, it's, he's a great orator. Uh, yeah. what, uh, so, and then the rest of his career, I, plenty of very fair criticisms of Jesse Jackson, no doubt about it. But you never got he never got into that anti-Semitic stuff again and, and made it a point in every one of his like you know public appearances, you know, to talk about the Holocaust, everything like that. And sort of that's where the in many ways the idea of the Rainbow Coalition kind of comes from. Um, anyway, uh, an important story. And by the way, it's the opposite of what's going on now, which is that, you know, if you are accused of racism or anti-Semitism or whatever it is, you know, you're banished for life. Whereas, you know, in another era, almost 40 years ago the idea was that we're going to work on you so that you can really try. I mean, when it worked and this occasionally would turn into these, you know, kind of ritual apologies, which were, you know, bullshit, but there, this was an example of how, you know, somebody really, you know, was, you you sort of turned this person who, who could have been this public figure and it would have been bad for the country. And he became in many ways an ally. And that's a, that's a nice story. I believe that the woman that he had an out of wedlock child with uh, was Israeli. I know, that's actually oh, not true. Well, I don't know. It's not, that's, <laughs> just, that's not. I'm just. <laughs> would, I just. No. Nice. I just, he uh, did. He did lie. do that. I think she was the secretary at the Rainbow <laughs> Push Coalition. But I just want to spread the rumor, like Mama Cass in the ham sandwich, that it was in fact the Israeli Minister of Labor or something, and then we can just get that. I will really rehab Jesse Jackson's. Uh, 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 career, but this is the thing. Donna Brazil had some association with him, and we were about um, fourteen or fifteen drinks in at this point. <laughs> and um, uh, no, I think I no mentioned cap, this no speech because I always do. No, my goodness <laughs> gracious! 
Um, there's some photos that are hilarious of that evening, and it's clear that everyone <laughs> has had a few too many. But we had a great conversation about Jesse. Yeah. Is this like the end of the uh, the Hangover? Where they show the Polaroid. We could absolutely do I mean, that and just put it on the Patreon. It was. You could, I'll tell you what, Patreon now is a hundred bucks. <laughs> and you're just going to get yeah. pictures of, of me and Camille and, and Donna. I mean, that, and it was, a, it was a fun night. The, the night ends and Donna's not with us at this point. And I mean, no. Donna was great. And at some point she did say, and it could have been the alcohol talking that she was, she would come on the podcast. So at this point, you know, I could yes. just like run down the list of mm. names, various people who said they would come on the podcast, be their true selves and, and have fun with so. us. Oh, look at that. Yeah. Donna Brazil. Uh-oh. And Michael yeah, Moynihan texting. Yeah. And is that relationship yeah, sensual? Yeah. I imagine it is. Has to be. I mean, it involves Michael Moynihan. I, Torre I has agreed this. to come on the podcast at some future date. Uh, Michael Rappaport, really? I think, has said that he would be interested in coming on the podcast. You know what I'm doing? I'm just putting this Michael all out Rappaport there. Retweeted just putting you this today, all out there. Didn't he? He, he? he didn't even retweet me. He just endorsed the the Barry Weiss post that we did the other day. Oh, okay. Um, that that well, wonderful yeah. collaboration, the the Amy Cooper story. That we did uh, uh, a couple of weeks back, so that was nice. Which was great. Was good. Work. Thank you, Eli. I appreciate it. It's been been denigrated in I, some circles. Uh, I tweeted. I tweeted the hell out. Of yeah, it. I know you did. Yeah, I know you did. And I think I even engaged people on it. I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. That, that, this is, is great work. That's right. I, was, I mean, I was that, all because that. it's true. Mike, Michael Rappaport, according <laughs> to a screenshot that Camille sent, was also engaging people about it, and he was like, essentially, everybody that uh, said something to him, he was like, "Yo, fuck you." <laughs> <laughs> He is, and I sent you a clip, that Vlad TV uh, clip, where he's talking about the the Tribe Called Quest documentary that he made because he loves hip hop. I mean, it's yeah. His book. I, by the way, you know that I'm the unofficial official political correspondent for the Michael Rappaport podcast. Is that, have you talked to me? Look at that. About I, this, I've been on, on many times. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm like one of the first regulars that he had. Yeah. Oh Are, man, how did I not know? That? Really? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is well, cruising to get himself canceled for show. That's good. I love it. But one of the one I of the responses that. that Camille sent, what was that? He was like, I didn't see what it was because it was a screenshot Camille oh. sent. And he, and he was like, he said, define Zionism, <laughs> dummy. <laughs> I think it was mostly mostly people denigrating denigrating Barry for for various crimes. Um non specific oh, non specific yeah. um crimes, or at least specific crimes with non specific evidence. It was just, you know, she's a monster, Zionist, pig, Islamophobe, whatever. You know, again, how this relates to Amy Cooper's saga in Central Park, walking her dogs, meeting Mr. Christian Cooper and the hour and a half long podcast we did. I don't know because we don't mention Israel, but whatever, <laughs> you know, yeah. keep it moving. It yeah. was there. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it <laughs> needless to say, there's a lot of people who may be on the podcast at some point. Now, it, at a minimum, if they don't show up, then I just said that they would at some point and it's false advertising, mm-hmm. but we'll see what happens. Uh, but more than that. No, you could just shame them. Yeah, more than it's that. Not false we, advertising. We also end the evening yeah. because I call an Uber and it was an Uber black. I did not go crazy. And a Rolls Royce mm-hmm. shows up. And we all climb into the Rolls Royce. The, the oh, Uber. nice! Um, and we are Camille riding back Uber home. Black was a black-owned Uber <laughs> I driver, did. car. I did. I was, and he was so like, disappointed. I need, we need to have that. So, yeah. So disappointed when it turned out the driver was not a black man, not a brother. I, I, I mean, it took about five minutes before I, I actually got in the car. I was so angry. Um, but we get in this car, and and our comrade who's with us, who I won't name, just so I don't indict him. Yeah. Uh, he he somehow manages to get like pop smoke blaring on the speakers. The windows mm-hmm. are kind of cracked. We're rolling down the street at maybe close to a hundred damn miles per hour, and Michael Moynihan proceeds to fall the hell asleep 
on my How shoulder I sleep in the I, back of this Rolls Royce. It is But by the way, I, just, I don't, the funny <laughs> I, thing is, is I'm fall like, asleep how, did I, is how did I miss that? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I want to say that like, oh fuck, how did I miss that? I fell asleep. But the thing is, I wasn't asleep when I got into the car and I don't remember that either. <laughs> so it doesn't matter if I'm sleeping in any real way, uh, which is odd that I was sleeping consider of all the things that were in my system at that point. Yeah. But, you know, I guess when they all mix together, you know, yeah. pop smoke, go to Camille sleep. Was, <laughs> Camille, was Michael asleep when he was on stage at Jumbo's Clown Room? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. I don't, I don't have any recollection of this <laughs> at all. Yeah. 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 That, th this is, for those who don't um, know and aren't uh, people from L.A., this is a kind of circus in which uh, people perform and they, there's like a, you know, it's just regular, it's a circus. It's, it's really nice. Speaking, and you know, it's all night and like, who knew that? Like LA is so cool. They have like an all night circus. Speaking of, like, speaking of yeah. things you'd rather, <laughs> rather forget exits that yeah. no one wants to really talk about. Nice. I don't know if it's coming to an end or just entering a, a, a completely fucked up new phase, but things are going nuts in Afghanistan. Uh, we have been away for a little while, so we haven't talked about this in a bit. It is almost certainly the case that you've read many, many perspectives on what's happened in Afghanistan. And Eli, because you are our guest, and I know that you have very strong opinions about this, I, I want to start with just your appraisal of where things stand right now, to the extent you're paying attention, because I know you're not getting much sleep. I have been paying attention. Um <laughs> I would argue that when Biden took office, there was a kind of stalemate in Afghanistan and he was impatient with the stalemate and basically chose a total catastrophe. And that's what we have. Uh, and the question is if, if the cost of maintaining the stalemate was what we were paying at the height of the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan. I think that there was a very strong argument that, that is clearly not sustainable. But the cost of the stalemate, and I know the argument from the Biden administration was, well, it couldn't hold if we made it clear that we weren't leaving, um, was 2,500 U.S. forces, uh, contract, Western contractors kept their, their, uh, their air force flying, um, and the Afghan security forces which are corrupt and we now know very weak, but they were doing the, the, the majority, they were doing almost all of the on the ground fighting and they were doing all of dying for the most part. The U S had not lost any casualties in Afghanistan for a year and a half. Um, given the investment and given the fact that foreign policy is often a choice between bad and terrible, uh, we, 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 we chose terrible and, uh, and Biden chose terrible. And I'm, I'm not here to tell, I think that there has been some myth-making on the, maybe you could say my side of the ledger on this debate, where people want to sort of focus only on the girls' schools. And I think that that's a, there, the statistics are there, that there was far more literacy in general, there was far more people in school, the public health statistics were much better over the 20 years, and certainly they were what before it. But I'm willing to concede a lot of the corruption and flaws and weakness that is this hell of Afghanistan. I just think uh, the status quo from three weeks ago is much better than what we have now, which is Taliban controlling the whole country. Now the Biden, so that's, that's kind of my, my, that's my, that's my main argument. I, I, you know. Yeah. Now the Biden administration's response to some of that is that the reason there weren't any casualties for a year or so is at least in part due to this deal that had been struck by the Trump administration with the Taliban. 
and a cent- centerpieces of this deal being that they shouldn't be friendly with terrorist organizations um, and relatedly that they can't target U.S. military personnel. And to the extent they do that and hold up their end, the United States would be exiting by a date certain. And the Biden administration's position on this is, had we stayed put, had we just tried to maintain the status quo, then we would have been in a situation where we probably would see more casualties. And whether or not that's true, I mean, the thing about the the stalemate is that the past year, we also saw, what, nearly a thousand terror attacks, or was is it more than that? I'm not sure, that were carried out in Afghanistan by the Taliban, directed at, as you mentioned, like the people, the citizenry, but also the military yeah. forces there. And the Taliban had been gaining ground in terms of taking over various regions um, of the country for more than a year. There'd been just this consistent back and forth over time. And the only reason that I would imagine that it's not, it wasn't much worse, you know, a, a year ago or even four weeks ago in terms of the amount of territory that was actually controlled, quote unquote, by the central government of Afghanistan is because there'd been massive troop surges in the past um, under a couple of different administrations. And the question was, were we going to do that again? What what was the real sort of status quo in Afghanistan? I think that's spin from the Biden administration who have said a lot of things and the president has said a lot of things that have been discredited in real time. But I just to sort of address what you said, the U.S. was still advising and assisting the Afghan security forces that were attacking the Taliban. Uh, U.S. was still or U.S. Western and the U.S. contractors were still making the uh, Afghan close air support possible, which were attacking the Taliban. And the Taliban was not agreeing to its side of the agreement by refusing to have any real negotiations with the Afghan government, which was. Uh, sort of a fig leaf that was in the Trump uh, deal, which I'm not defending, by the way. I thought that the Trump negotiations were disgraceful too. But the other part of it is that the big the big way that they tried, that I remember this because I was one of the journalists that the Trump administration brought in to try to sell their uh, peace process, was that they, and Pompeo, the Secretary of State under Trump, uh, said this publicly, that the Taliban would agree to not only sever ties with al-Qaeda, but they would be our counterterrorism partners against al-Qaeda, which is insane and ludicrous. But that was sort of the structure of the agreement. None of that was happening. That's not me or my opinion. That's the UN itself looked at this question and a recent report from a few months ago has confirmed it. Uh, It was in June, yeah, in June 2020. The UN yeah, said this, exactly, this hasn't right. happened, um, that so, UN report. And, yeah. and there, there's even more evidence. So the Taliban wasn't agreeing to the agreement, um, which, if it was to work in theory, was supposed to be conditional so that the any withdrawal would be based on sort of Taliban meeting their obligations. Now, to complicate that, it's also true that Trump did not care about those conditions and at the end of his presidency tried to do what Biden just did. But Biden came in in the middle of this review of Afghan policy and just said, I am supporting an unconditional withdrawal, no matter what the Taliban does in terms of this agreement. And as for the other argument, which is that we would have to surge tens of thousands of troops in order to kind of keep up a stalemate. Well, that I don't think is true either. Um, A very small force was there weren't there were less than, I think, 7000 U.S. forces 
before the Trump negotiations with the Taliban that were keeping them at bay. And then the, the, the third thing that you said, Camille, which is true, that in the rural areas, the Taliban had been gaining some ground, but they had not controlled any of the major cities. I don't think they'd controlled any of the provincial capitals. And notice what happens as soon as the U.S. does this rapid withdrawal. They run through the country like a knife through butter. Now, some of that is because the Afghan security forces were never what the generals and the Pentagon sold them as. That's true. The country is extremely corrupt. The U.S. abated, abetted a lot of that corruption. Um, that's all true, but nonetheless, it's also true that as long as there was a sense that the United States was going to be there in some overwatch capacity, which is what they were doing, they were there for counterterrorism, and they were there basically to kind of provide this advise and assist there would be these very brave U.S. special operators that would go out and paint airstrike targets. But that is not an intensive kind of personnel-intensive operation like we saw during the Obama surge in 2009 and 2010. Again, that's the kind of thing you can do with a few thousand forces. And I say for that investment, that is not a forever war. It's not ideal. It's not great. I think that Afghanistan will never become a Jeffersonian democracy, but again, it's better than the Taliban taking over and this, I think you would agree, international humiliation that we are witnessing right now, not to mention all the humanitarian, but also the fact that the Taliban really do love jihadist terrorism, and they will become a safe haven for Al-Qaeda and all kinds of other bad guys that uh, have revenge on their minds. So again, that was like, I would put it like this, the mission in Afghanistan for the last seven years or so was to prevent the Taliban from taking over. And uh, we just kind of lost patience with it. And the pre and President Biden decided that's what he was going to do. And here, here, here we are. And uh, as evidence of sort of, I think, the folly of his decision, he has had to surge more troops just to get Americans out. Uh, that is what he had to do. The question, Eli, is, I mean, I get the point, but the, the question one has to deal with then is for how long, right? I mean, if this is the kind of face of Afghanistan right now, if America pulls back a limited number of troops, that the country is quickly overrun and the security forces that people have been lying about for a long time, you know, surely brave in, in, in so many ways and uh, surely well-trained and probably a decent fighting force, but they understand that writing is the writing's on, on the wall. And they want to strip their uniforms off and not be, you know, uh, disappeared in the middle of the night. I get that. But if you keep those people there, it, it does at that point become an endless, even if it's not a war where people are dying, because what the last 18 months, I don't think a, a single American has died. But at what point do you have to say, okay, we can't actually babysit them forever. And once that does happen, if it's five years from now, 10 years from now, the exact same result will um come to fruition and, and um, you know, Kabul will fall and the Taliban will have its country and its safe haven and Al-Qaeda will too and ISIS will too. And, you know, it's also funny to see how Putin and the Russians are exploiting this vacuum, the country that created the Mujahideen by propping up a fake uh, Soviet-backed government uh, is now um, trying to deal with the Mujahideen in the opposite way that America was dealing with them in the past. It's the roles are reversed. But at, at what point do you say 
we can't do this anymore because the outcome is, is inevitable and we might as well just do it now. I just think that um, if, the, if, it, if, if it was required to have 60,000 U.S. forces there and a major kind of commitment with the numbers of the peak of Afghanistan war of Americans dying, then I would agree with you that that's too high a price to pay. Uh, a few thousand forces in Afghanistan for a great superpower like the United States, in my view, is not too high a price to pay indefinitely for the time being to prevent the Taliban from taking over. And just just because uh, I even though it's it's not a it's it's not it's not an endorsement to sort of say, I think that let me put it like this. I think that the argument against uh, or the argument for just sort of rip off the Band-Aid and get out is really in many ways structured as an argument against getting in. And there's, there's no way, you talked about this on, on Andrew Sullivan's podcast, there's no mm. way the United States would not have gone into Afghanistan after 9-11. Yeah. There's only no one member of Congress yeah. who voted against going into yeah, Afghanistan. Barbara, Barbara Lee, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, was it a mistake to attempt to erect a federal government in Kabul that would bring women's rights to the entire country? Yes, yes. it was. Mm-hmm. That was a mistake. Yeah. Uh, but was it was it a mistake to you know, try to fund girls' literacy programs in Kabul and other things like that? I don't think it necessarily was. Uh, there are plenty of Afghan women who wanted to sure, participate. Just in as it. long as you don't bring it up. He, he's you know, bringing it up for the third third time, uh, Eli, the yeah. girls' literacy thing. Um, no, the, uh, here's a question. So, like, let's put Eli Lake now yeah. is Secretary of State or yeah. at least, you know, uh, uh, running the press conferences for the State Department. What is the sales job on that? We are going to have an, an a not allow the Taliban to take over Afghanistan force forever, uh, overseeing a very corrupt and failed state, at least the perimeter that we could control. It'll be about, uh, let's say, 6,000 troops. To That's how many I guess we have right now. Um, it'll extend uh, as far as the eye could see, unless the worm terms. But let's just pretend let's just assume that it doesn't. But that should be enough. Is that is that a sales job? Is that like accurately kind of uh summarize what that sales job would be and do you think that would be convincing uh not just to a fatigued american people but to the servicemen and women who are out there thinking this is this is the mission uh you know oversee a crap country if i was selling it i would say there's still a lot of bad guys in afghanistan and our forces are primarily concerned with uh finding them and killing them and the uh, and we are using our leverage in the country to encourage a real kind of reconciliation process. But we're gonna we're not gonna leave uh, if it means that um, the Taliban are gonna overrun the country because that's an unacceptable outcome as well. And a lot of you kids in the press corps probably don't remember it, but nine eleven was really bad, and we don't want another one. <laughs> I mean, I just, I mean- that's kind of how I would sell it. I mean, I agree with you. It's it's as I said. Foreign policy is almost always a choice between bad and horrible. Yeah. And uh, you got to choose bad sometimes because it's not horrible. Um, but if you make the one bad the, choice the, 19 years ago to say that we can't unmake that choice forever um, doesn't necessarily but seem, I, but, a, arrive you, at wisdom Matt, would, to would me. It, let me put, turn it around. Would you agree, though, that that we're also making a choice now to get out? And yeah. there was plenty of – I mean, listen, people talk about the intelligence community. They hedge all the time, and you can find – analysts and agencies to say what you want. 
But there were plenty of people who weren't in the intelligence community. There were plenty of journalists on the ground. There were those, the diplomatic cable from Kabul that we know about that from July. Everybody was saying, if you do it this way, if you just get out and pull the cord, um, you know, the Taliban will take over. And part of that is because we trained the Afghan military to fight with this close air support. And when you pull out all of the Western contractors who keep the planes flying, then you know, they're sitting ducks in a lot of ways. Now that was, again, go back in time and say, all right, we should, we should train the Afghan security forces to fight more of kind of, you know, similar to the Taliban that will not rely on these complex supply chains. I'm all for that. That's a good idea. We should have done that. It would have been a good idea if the Pentagon had made more contingency plans to try to have more realistic goals for Afghanistan. All of that is fair, but we are where we are in this particular moment. And I just don't see how it's too high a price to continue to pay, given the entire amount of investment that we've already made in this, to just prevent the Taliban from taking over the country, to keep them in their caves. I think that's the the challenge that I have with the argument you're making, Mm -hmm. the central one, Eli. This past spring, there was that congressional report I'm confident you saw. It has this, this now famous or at least infamous phrase, By many measures, the Taliban are stronger in a stronger military position now than at any point since 2001. Yeah. Control of the country was already slipping out of the hands of an inept government and a military force that we've spent decades equipping and training, even when we were there providing support, carrying out airstrikes coordinated with them to try and beat back this force. The status quo was failing in that respect. Well, I disagree with you. I think the status quo could have been maintained. Well, the status quo was the Taliban gaining more control. Like, well, or, but, or do you dispute that the Taliban was, in fact, gaining greater control I, uh, and was in a, a stronger position than at any point since 2001 in, in April well, of they, this well, past year? Oh, That's in 20 April, years later. Right. Well, okay. So two things. One is, I do think that War is not just military formations on the ground. It's largely psychological and very much political. And so the argument from the Taliban is the Americans will eventually leave like all of these other outsiders have left before. So when Uh you have a president in Trump agreeing to negotiate with the Taliban and cutting out the elected government in Kabul, and I would say that it's an elected government, even though every election there's been lots of credible allegations of fraud on all sides, but nonetheless, yeah. uh, you know, a more legitimate government than these, you know, Taliban fanatics um, that that combined with Biden saying we're getting out no matter what, overruling his secretary of defense and his the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, that that does have an effect where, of course, the local commanders are going to hedge their bets, um, particularly after they, you know, have been used to fighting with this close air support and no longer have it. So I think I disagree with your point that eventually the Taliban would have taken over with a sort of small footprint. I think a small footprint would have been able to beat them back. I think that the psychological effect of leaving the way that we did uh, expedited that process. And so I would just say, don't do it. It's not. And again, I think that there's some people who make the argument again on my side of it, who try to sort of say, well, you know, it was really great. Uh, It wasn't great. But it wasn't as bad as what's coming from not just a humanitarian perspective, which I think is obvious. We, I think we'd all agree the Taliban is worse than 
what they are replacing. It's bad from a strategic perspective. It's bad because of the terrorism concern, even though I don't think the terrorism is as much, is the highest threat right now for the United States, but it's still a threat. It's bad from mm. just a perspective of honor and like national honor and our national reputation, because one of the things that we count on and America counts on is the network of alliances it has to contain other rival great powers like China. And so if you create any kind of doubt in a place like Vietnam or, I don't know, Morocco or wherever of a medium sized or smaller countries that the United States will not be a steadfast ally, then that is provocative and people will test the United States as we saw, by the way, after the Barack Obama promised and then reneged on his promise to intervene after Bashar Assad in Syria used chemical weapons, we saw within a matter of months, the Russians annex Crimea. Now, uh, there are a lot of other factors involved, and I couldn't give you a kind of mathematical theorem that proves that this is exactly what happened, but this is how statecraft works, is that everybody's kind of watching in the big jungle, you know, in the, in, in, in the big jungle of international uh, relations of the world. And when something like this happens, when we have this kind of humiliation where there are uh, Afghan interpreters and people who were our allies, who we made a commitment to jumping in the wheel well of a, of a C-130 as it's taking off, those mm. images resonate and they're going to have enormous implications in all kinds of other things that we care about. So Eli, that was four or five days ago. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Oh, did you read Jen Rubin's thing about like how the no. press is too hard now on biden like what happened it's crazy yeah. it's <laughs> it crazy is, yeah. it's also true it's worth pointing out and we're recording this on a monday night that i think in the last week or eight days the international coalition has airlifted out more than forty-two thousand people including mm -hmm. like fifteen thousand or something close to that in the last 24 hours is the claim some of that is because the french and the british insisted on doing it and said that biden was really screwing up and it's a it's a disgrace and whatnot, but there has been um, an airlift of people and not just on wheel wells ever since. My a problem I have, uh, Eli, is just that I don't see how you would uh, extend that logic to us still being in Vietnam in 1975. And and this is something that, that we've talked about on this podcast previously. You know, I, I've always advocated leaving Afghanistan and have always invoked Saigon 1975 as part of that, as just sort of the intellectual honesty of seeing the horror that will come afterwards. I've always assumed that there would be a horror and hope that there wouldn't be. Um, at the same time, uh, I can't uh, uh, necessarily abide by the use of U.S. military to be the bad thing prevention force. I want to say I agree that the United States cannot be the bad things everywhere prevention force. But I don't think the Vietnam analogy is correct. In what sense? I mean, I would say the Vietnam analogy is interesting, and, and there's a number of books about this, and they're called revisionist books, and some of them are actually quite good. I don't agree with all of them, uh, specifically Lewis Sorley's book, A Better War, uh, which basically makes the argument that uh, the United States and the Nixon administration lost the war on purpose at a certain point when it was militarily um, capable of either winning, in, depending on how you define the terms, or holding the North Vietnamese to the North and obviously not going to abide by what they, you know, agreed to in 1973 uh, in, in Paris, much like the, the Taliban's not going to abide by anything that agreed with the Trump administration. So the similarities in that sense, but in the, in the Afghanistan sense, the thing that it, it, 
worries me about it or worried me for a long time about it was that there was no, it never struck me that there was never any possibility of a Lewis Sorley book ever being written, that there was a, a window of opportunity that, you know, uh, the people in Washington, the military abrogated their responsibilities for various political reasons and decided not to win. Uh, one reason that I think that is what is the name of the airport that we keep talking about? It's the Hamid Karzai airport. Hamid Karzai handpicked in 2001 for an interim government wins an election in 2004 and then serves uh, two terms. Despite the fact that the Taliban tried to assassinate him a number of times, Karzai was quite openly trying to court them the whole way. I mean, there's a photograph of Karzai and the Taliban leadership from a couple of days ago. Uh, and you can say, well, yeah, that's a that's a good thing. And it might be that uh, he's trying to make this an easier, smoother transition. Uh, but, you know, he's been calling them his brothers uh, since 2008, 2009. And it's it reminded me of Chalabi in so many ways that somebody that was on the side of the United States in the in the initial idea of getting rid of the Taliban or getting rid of Saddam Hussein. And then, you know, next scene in Tehran, buddying up well, with Iranians. Chalabi, in fairness, never sided with the Ba'ath party of Iraq. He, he yeah. sided, and, the, and he was always close with the Iranians. I know this, somebody who worked, who covered Shalabi pretty closely. To yeah, no, no, I, no, I, no, yeah. no, I, no, I know that. The, the, the yeah. parallel that I'm making is that both of them at some point uh, are very, very closely operating with America's enemies, right? And not this kind of liberal person coming in to try to, you know, remake in a Western democracy in their home country. So the car and the reason I bring up Karzai is it seemed kind of inevitable to me the whole time when you have the person that is initially handpicked by the U.S. And, you know, his his inauguration is attended by Dick Cheney, et cetera, in, in 2004, who is not really um, saying a lot of bad things about the Taliban. I mean, famously, in I think it was 2015 or 16 that he he prevented an attack on a Taliban encampment. Um, and it kept on saying, I mean, I suppose there's some truth to this, that if Americans are knocking on Afghan doors or kicking them down, this is not going to help anyone. But we never had this government there that was like the liberal democratic government. Of course, know. we knew okay. that. Yeah. But it always seemed way too um, sympathetic. And again, I don't, this is not my bailiwick. This is yours. So this is more of a question than a statement. Well, I, I, is, I wanted to am I back wrong to in thinking that that he was way too that, that the regime that was in place for so long was way too sympathetic uh, to the Taliban? So I want to I'll answer that first, but I want to come back to something Matt said. Um, yeah, at the end, Hamid Karzai was too close to the Taliban, and he lost an election, and ultimately Ashraf Ghani came in. And the big criticism, by the way, from the Biden administration is that Ashraf Ghani was not accommodating enough of the Taliban. That he never liked the, the peace talks that Trump that Trump started and Biden half-heartedly tried and kind of you know decided to get on anyway. But back to something that Matt said, I don't think the Vietnam analogy is quite right for a few reasons. One, the, the Vietnam War, the casualties, the number of Americans that were fighting in Vietnam was like I don't know, is geometrically like larger than what we ever had in Afghanistan. There was a time... And conscripted army, it was, too, which is Exactly, important. that's another point. There's a conscripted army in Vietnam. Um, the Afghanistan papers, I think, are really devastating, particularly about the fighting capabilities of the Afghan forces. Mm. But they mm -hmm. are nothing compared to the Pentagon papers uh, that exposed the series of lies and deceitful diplomacy and ultimately a, a kind of U.S.-backed coup of a South Vietnamese government uh, that were exposed by Daniel Ellsberg and the New York Times. Um, the, and by that, 
the the fact that Saigon fell in 1975 was after the United States withdrew over 100,000 forces from the country over a three-year period of time. And a Democrat-controlled Congress decided to cut off the economic assistance to the South Vietnamese government. The, 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 the circumstances under which, you know, again, I think 2,500 forces, if you want to say we needed 7,000 forces, that to me is not really comparable. 7,000 forces doing only counterterrorism, no longer fighting, going door to door and fighting in the civil war on behalf of uh, the Afghan military is not the, not what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam. Uh, and in that respect, I think it was sustainable in a way that Vietnam was not sustainable. So that's my counter, although I also can see that there are, of course, similarities there. And, you know, I think your point is right, that you had to price in that there were going to be, there was going to be a horror show eventually after we left. And I guess what I would say is, if you know there was going to be a horror show, the question is, how much were you willing to spend to prevent it? And my view is, a few thousand troops, 7,000 forces, was not too high a price to kind of, you know, prevent that from happening. And then, you know, the thing about history is there's all kinds of things that you, you can't account for in the future that could have changed these dynamics. I don't think it was inevitable that we would have to have the, the sort of scenes that we're seeing right now from Kabul. Um, I think, and again, I would have been willing to kind of continue to prevent that again to sort of maintain a stalemate where the U.S. had really has not been fighting since 2015. Uh you know, directly in the Civil War, uh, the way that it was always the U.S. that was fighting alongside the South Vietnamese against the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. One uh, parallel you'll appreciate, Eli. Uh, Michael Moore, uh, Camille sent around a piece that he wrote in his (laughs) brand new Substack, the far right Michael Moore, who's on Substack, um, in which uh, one of the dumbest pieces uh, he's ever written, which which is saying something. But saying, uh, you know, look, everything is fine. Everything is great. Look at, you know, people are leaving. No one's being hunted and executed. This is all. And it reminded me the second I read that, uh, the Vietnam analogy that, that I thought of there was uh, the, the myth of the bloodbath. Do you know about this? Where people are predicting the bloodbath that would inevitably happen when with oh, the, is, the I'm thinking North of, Vietnamese. of Chomsky and Herman's book on uh, Cambodia, yeah, yeah, well, assuring us yes. that there was no genocide. Yeah, well, yeah. well, yes, that too. Uh, yeah, there was it uh, distortions at fourth hand. I think was the original right. uh, piece in the nation. But the there was uh, the bulletin of concerned Asia scholars, uh, uh, which you know was the in-house magazine kind of the anti-war movement at the time. In 1973, they of course published that thing, but the Michael Moore thing, the exact same thing that Michael Moore wrote. But Afghanistan, the myth of the bloodbath, mm. uh, Viet, uh, North Vietnam's land reform reconsidered by. I'm going to give you one guess who it was. Gareth Porter? Yes, there you go. Still (laughs) undefeated. I knew it. Wow. (laughs) Still undefeated. That's why it's a deep cut. That was a, when I said when I saw Michael Moore's piece about Afghanistan, it's like everything's fine. Like nothing even bad is happening. They're just letting people leave. really no write that. Hunted. Eat nice. Cream. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Oh my yeah. god, it's pretty. It was pretty crazy. It was called peeling the uh, American. Dozens of planes have safely taken off all week, and not one of them has been shot down. None of our troops in this chaotic, chaotic situation have been killed. 
uh, despite the breathless shrieks of panic from maleducated journalists who think Ooh. they're covering the Taliban of the 90s, of course, this is different. Jake Tapper on CNN keeps making references to beheadings and how girls might be kidnapped and raped and forced to become child brides. Mm. None of this seems to be happening. I do not want to hear how we need to study what's wrong with this Taliban victory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes on to, to say that nothing bad is happening because Michael Moore um, is, uh, has very, very good sources on the ground there. And he is our Gareth Porter, but uh, much, much richer. Why can't the left just stick to the strong arguments they have that happen to be true? You've done it for 20 years. It's still incredibly corrupt. What about the Baki Bazi? Mm. What about the fact that the other side also has these, like, you know, this pederasty that's going on? Um, mm. There's all kinds of terrible things that you can say about the U.S. war, the civilian casualties of drone strikes, wedding parties. All true. You could stick to the mm-hmm. truth without lying about the Taliban. I do not understand why people cannot get this in their head. <laughs> I try, as somebody who I guess is on the other side of this argument, to concede the things that are true that are harmful to my argument, that weaken my side of the argument. Like, I, you know what I'm saying? I, 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 that's why I am a journalist. I, and I'm not just sort of out there saying, no, 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 no. I get it. I understand that there is a strong argument for saying it's 20 years. What the hell are we doing? And that's mm-hmm. why I made the argument that I did. It's saying stalemate is better than a catastrophe. But I don't get it. And I've seen it in other not just Michael Moore, you've seen this thing about, and this is, by the way, why you saw that Taliban press conference a week ago, remember this, where they, you know, they, they, they get up there and they say, no, 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 we're, no, no revenge killings, women are free to work as long as it's within Sharia law, and that's why they do it, because they know <laughs> that there are Michael Moores out there that are willing to lap it up like the lapdogs mm. of dirtbags that they are. Um, Eli, can I ask you one yeah. big question here? Yes. I'd love to hear your answer to this because I've known you for a long time. Yes. Um, and we agree on some things. We disagree on some other things. You uh, were a pro-Iraq war guy. Uh, same thing I, is true in Afghanistan. 20 years has gone by. We keep saying that. But tell me how you think about all of this stuff now because I hear so many concessions from you. Mm-hmm. about what has gone wrong, about the limits of American power and foreign policy to affect change in certain places in the world and just to affect change in general. So if you were to like look back and say, this is the Eli from, say, 2003, 2004, what is the difference almost 20 years down the line with the experience of what America has done uh, overseas and the results? Can, and can I just layer in sure. something really quickly? It's that George W. Bush speech kind of laying out the objectives for the mission at the very beginning of all of this, where he says, we know this from not only intelligence, but from the history of military conflict in Afghanistan. It's been one of initial success, followed by long years of floundering and ultimate failure. We're not going to repeat that mistake. Mm -hmm. But of course, we went on to completely repeat that mistake. It's been decades of like shifting and ever evolving priorities that I, I can only generously <laughs> describe as super fucking murky, completely impractical and sort of nuts. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious about the same thing. Here's, I guess what I would have, would say to myself 20 years ago, America cannot be a kind of indefinite colonial power. It's not in our DNA. And at the end of the day, these kinds of long wars, as they are known, 
are not probably politically sustainable. And there's a way to do lots of counterterrorism assistance. There's a lot of things that we can do, but we should know the limits of our ability to remake these societies short of the kinds of horrific uses of force that we saw that ended World War II. So I would say that you were able to transform Japan and Germany because the U.S. was willing to drop nuclear bombs on Japan and firebomb cities in Germany, and that created a kind of year zero. And so you were able to sort of rebuild from that. But if you don't, if you're, if you're, if the United States is unwilling for a lot of reasons and good reasons, I want to say, and this is, I'm not, I'm not lamenting this, use mm-hmm. that level of violence, then you are not going to be able to impose these kinds of systems in a, in this sort of way. That said, I do think that there's a kind of I'm 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 still impressed by the resilience of the Iraqi system, which has still managed to have regular elections, still has a constitution, still has a relatively free media, especially given compared to other its neighbors. Um, and uh, so, but nonetheless, I think that that's what I'd say is that you have to be. You have to, I would sort of say to myself, you have to understand that the mood in the country right now will not last. And that over time, the default position of the United States is that we are fundamentally, we just lack, uh, H.R. McMaster just wrote something about this, but I agree with him. We lack a kind of strategic patience for this kind of nation building. And so you need to then tailor missions in such a way that are, that, that, that take that that keep that in mind. Now, I think the United States can still support without military, and I think free peoples all over the world should support uh, without a military, uh, you know, various pro-democracy and freedom movements all over the world, and that ultimately our best allies are the people who are risking their lives in Iran to, to protest their theocracy uh, and things like that. But I also think that it is uh, not really possible and I think that there's a re- in a in a deep in our guts as Americans, it's just not possible for our republic to do this. So I suppose that is a concession to the anti-war side of the libertarian side, but I think it just happens to be true, and history has borne that out. I think that that's right in the Vietnam sense too, yeah. um, because we have we have that's where the the two worlds kind of bridge. And it never happens again. Yeah. So the kind of ideas of Curtis LeMay and people like that are still in existence in Vietnam. So you are bombing the the dikes and dams in, in North North Vietnam and these tapes of Nixon and Kissinger saying, you know, are we going to kill 200,000 people? Yeah, probably. Okay, fine. Um, you know, Operation Rolling Thunder of just carpet bombing, uh, bombing into, into Cambodia, et cetera. That was the old strategy of how you win a war, which is, by the way, still the strategy that works. I'm not saying, like you're saying, I'm not saying this is a good thing, but that's does that's right. kind of what works. You drop you drop nukes on, on on Japan, but that actually met with the anti-war movement, and then that kind of came apart. And so to kind of you know address both of those things, there comes the light footprint. I mean, right. I don't think that's what Donald. Donald Rumsfeld is thinking when he has the light footprint in Afghanistan. But I said this I, on Mar uh, on, last week or two weeks ago, and I couldn't really get into it because it's so fast. But, you know, we are very good at winning wars. People say America keeps losing wars. I mean, actual fighting, right? We're going to be superior in almost every way. Staying, uh, you know, 
making a govern, government democratic, we are uh, incapable of. But if you look at the people who do wage wars and do win them, like, you know, what Russia does, what, um, you know, the Chinese do in waging war on their own citizens, whether it's in Hong Kong uh, or it's the Rohingya, yeah. is that, you know, they do this in a way, um, I said Rohingya, I didn't mean to say Rohingya, but um, you meant they, Uyghurs. they do this. Yeah, Uyghurs. They, they do this in a way which is just like, you know, I don't care for the niceties of democratic society. That's the way you can win, right? If you, like, you can't, you can't firebomb places anymore. Literally, the firebombing of Hamburg, people don't even remember. It is almost comparable to what happened at Dresden. It was absolute brutality. But there's a caveat here, which is that what I think the United States can do is the strategy that it employed against the ISIS caliphate which is find a capable fighting local militia, the Kurdish Maoists in Syria, uh, <laughs> and get them linked up with, uh, you know, Green Berets and U.S. air power, and you can uh, destroy a caliphate in less than two years. And that uh, is something that the United States is capable of. But notice what's missing from that. We didn't then stay, or there isn't any kind of military mission at this point, to convince those Kurdish fighters then to, uh, you know, build a democracy with various quota for women to participate in the parliament. Although actually I should say, I've talked with those Kurds and they're far more feminist than you would think. They, they are actually pretty good on women's rights, but that, but you, you, you know what you follow what I'm saying is that you, you just, it's, it's that part of it where it's like, you have to sort of understand the limits of what the United States can do short of using, uh, an obscene amount of violence that will kind of create a year zero effect. Just uh, as a as a very quick aside, that's got to stand as one of the least talked about military campaigns and successful, I, I, I yes. think. And correct me, military campaigns in modern history, like when people uh, do a retrospective on the Trump presidency, it's not going to come up. It's not going to come uh, up. And in 20, not very much. But in 2014, yeah. America was absolutely obsessed with uh, hostages getting their heads cut off like it. It totally reshape the trajectory of the of the 2016 presidential uh primary campaign at that time um people thought there's nothing that can be done uh it just didn't get a lot of press coverage and there used to be a big thing called isil or whatever and that thing doesn't really exist anymore and it's just weirdly not talked about i find can that I, can I, never you, can I that was very funny <laughs> they tried to go isil yeah and everyone was like no we're gonna still um, matt i just had a, a funny <laughs> aside but like New can you crap. imagine like if in 20 years Actually, like all these revisionist histories came out, and like Trump was a genius. <laughs> oh, Trump, he, it's he defeated the. You he think defeated so? ISIS. He got. He got. He got. He got us on the right foot when it came to China and our trade relationship. Dude, and you know what? He was totally right about like hydrochloric wine. That turned out to cure COVID. Like, and just, uh, I'm not saying it's going to happen. Yeah. I just think it would be very funny if it yeah. turned out like all every, this stuff was Trump was right. You know, like <laughs> he secretly tried to assassinate Vladimir Putin, and nobody gave him credit for it. Like. Yeah, we saw it when Nixon died, and, uh, oh, and yeah. that's what I knew. Every ex-president is eventually given respect uh, and uh, and even revered. And I remember bringing this up at the often end. Often by the other side, too. Often by the other uh, side. I remember bringing this up Nixon. Yeah. At, at the end yeah. of George W. Bush's presidency because he was so hated. Like he was hated by everybody. I'm like, you watch. I know this is going to sound weird, but we're going to we're going to think that he's cuddly. And you know yeah. what? We think he's cuddly. He's making the paintings. Yeah. We kind of miss and him. Trump, yeah. Trump did a lot to help with that, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah. The PEPFAR program, the, the, the AIDS, the Africa AIDS initiative, that's like a huge Bush thing that'll be remembered well, you know, all this other yeah, stuff. Yeah. Right? The little but candy can... with the Michelle Obama. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, but the thing is, and one f- final thing on this sort of grand strategy of foreign policy thing, which I know you think and write a lot about your life, is um, how does this affect the United States and its relationships with adversarial foreign powers? Because I think that if I were someone sitting in Beijing or if I was somebody sitting in Moscow and Moscow already has done this and knows this, you know, and I said this to, to Andrew the other day, it's like, why not retake Taiwan? Right. I mean, what the fuck is America going to do? They didn't do anything in Hong Kong. They have their, their tail between their legs coming out of Afghanistan after 20 years. The public sentiment is not one that uh, admires America going overseas into foreign conflicts and getting itself involved. But the bulwark against this stuff has always been the United States. So is, is it, are we in a place now, do you think, that as a result of this, whether we should have been there or not, and whether the strategy was right or not, that it is going to have a kind of ricochet effect on some of our adversaries being a little more muscular in their own foreign policies? Yes, but it's not quite that simple because, first of all, China in its new wolf warrior diplomacy is alienating a lot of people where they Mm -hmm. could have had a strategy that would have been one where um, they, they sort of were more tolerant of you know, but they get, they take such personal affront to anything that like might seem like they're challenging anything about China. Um, as we saw with, uh, you know, the, the, the dust up a year and a half ago about the NBA, if you remember that and Hong Kong, John Cena. Yeah, exactly. Um, that they, they, they're, they're making <laughs> more enemies and sometimes the lucky it's, it, America is lucky in that its adversaries are such colossal pieces of shit that, you know, let's be honest, even though America is weak and feckless and doesn't seem like a steadfast ally, it's still a better bet than like aligning with Xi's China or Putin's Russia or, you know, in a regional sense, Iran or something like that. Um, So it's always important to kind of keep that in mind that it's not that, you know, America makes blunders, but so do our adversaries. And that's important to always remember that, you know, these are at the end of the day, human endeavors. Um, But yes, I do think you raise a very, good point and a frightening point, which is that there will be people who will test American resolve at this point. And the real problem is that one of the things that the Democrats national security types said during the Trump years was America can survive four years of Trump, but eight years of Trump would change the world and America standing in the world and the nature of our alliance systems and everything like that. Uh, I think that there was something to that because Trump did not sort of share the values of past American presidents on these things, which used to be uncontroversial. But I do think that what Biden did in the way that he did it is almost like an extension of Trump. And it literally is an extension of Trump because he's justifying his decision because he says his hands were tied by Trump's, what I would view as very bad agreement. Um, and so that I think is the problem. And it's kind of a bipartisan thing now, which is, you had Trump four years of Trump and the, you know, part of the argument for Biden's presidency was that this was an aberration. America is back. But then you do something like this and you have to wonder, well, now both parties presidents are doing this kind of thing. And this is kind of a retreat. So does that give, does that give a little lift to the AOCs of the world who can, who get a little lift from, you know, collapsing banks and the rest of it? I mean, does the foreign policy aspect make them look better to, to the average voter too? 
You mean domestically? Um, yeah, I mean, just yeah, the left of the party, are they strengthened by this? It doesn't really I, seem like it at the moment. I don't I mean, know. They've been largely absent from the political stage. They're not talking about anything publicly that seems to be resonating. The, the they don't need mainstream to. media discourse has moved on for a moment, at least, thankfully, from all of the cultural controversies and is focused primarily on what is a genuine sort of debacle for the Biden administration in terms of their yeah. conduct of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And and I think it, it's it's worthwhile to say that there's been a fair amount of hysterical response to this um, and some overstatement about how miserable and awful it is right now. <laughs> it is possible that things could get much worse very soon and no reason at all to endorse any kind of Pollyanna-ish um, ideas about what the, the Taliban is likely to do. But the, the Biden administration has, has done just among the like shittiest imaginable jobs um, of of sort of getting out of this maelstrom and is clearly in a defensive crouch when it comes to like messaging around all of this, the the total absence of many of the important prominent role players in this administration. Like you haven't heard anything from the vice president of the United States. The Pentagon was largely silent for a while. People were literally on vacation when they should have been talking about this stuff publicly and defending their actions. Um, and it's clear that they're playing a lot of catch up. This is a huge embarrassment for them. And Se- ought to senior be. officials have contradicted the president. Yes, mm. m- on multiple occasions within like a few hours. Oh, we don't have any reports of anyone having any trouble getting to the airport. And and moments yeah. later, someone at the Pentagon is saying, "Well, yeah, no, I mean, we've got some 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 problems going on on the ground there." It's just it's completely insane. But it, for me, the debacle of the Biden administration's conduct here is one dimension of what's wrong. When you have an unsustainable strategy that was always unsustainable and you have a populace that isn't naturally interested in what the fuck is going on in Afghanistan and Afghanistan has historically never, ever had the the sort of kind of cultural basis that's required to have the kind of government that we do. And Eli, I think we're just going to have to agree to disagree. Sure. The military had lost control of the situation in Afghanistan. That government didn't have the confidence of its people. And if well, I don't know about that. Two thousand odd. Well, look, I'm just saying, if maneuvering two thousand odd American service persons is enough to cause the complete implosion of a government that we've spent trillions of dollars and decades supporting and constituting, then you didn't have much infrastructure there to begin with. And I think that has to be the principal takeaway here. We have to be prudent and thoughtful about the kind of massive projects that we take on from a foreign policy standpoint. Because I agree with like the the concern about China. I agree with the concern about Russia. I'm a non-interventionist who who very much feels like I wish a I wish a CCP would. They're bad actors who have created no shortage of problems for the world over the course of just the past couple of years. Hong Kong is one thing. The global pandemic that they have helped to make much worse for everyone. Those are real tangible risks. And the possibility that they do much worse besides in the future, that matters too. It just seems to me that that so much of the attention is on, you know, the Biden administration is incompetent and they're stupid and they're awful. And they are. But a, a tragedy 20 years in the making that we probably should have never embarked on, like it, it seems important that that is the focal point. Camille, that's a, that's, I just would say what you just said is a strong argument. Um, and I understand that we have to worry about these sorts of things, but I just would come back to the, th- the, the precipitating event here was the withdrawal. 
the way that we did it. This, this hadn't happened until we withdrew. That was the precipitating event. So I'm in agreeing, I'm kind of agreeing that like, yeah, it does show kind of how hollow the military was, but they were holding on when the maintenance teams and the contractors were still giving the close air support and the U.S. was doing its counterterrorism missions. Um, and there was a perception that the United States was not abandoning the government uh, in Kabul. It was only at, until it was very clear that we were we were leaving that all of these events happened. Yeah. One popular narrative about America and American culture is, you know, that something is different about America. We can't do hard things. We can't commit ourselves to important projects that we really, really need to get done. It's certainly true that the culture has changed, but I wonder about the the degree to which things have really changed in a way that is an indictment of the culture, so to speak. These the kind of year zero effect that you described with World War II. I mean, there's there's all sorts of knock on effects after a conflict like that, and you do get a Cold War afterwards that is expensive and dangerous, and you know, but for the grace of God. Like, fortunately, your Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't turn into an, an actual hot nuclear war. That's not a strategic victory born out of masterful foreign policy and diplomacy. There's a lot of fucking luck involved in that. Sure. Well, there's luck involved in all foreign, on all foreign affairs. It's always luck. It starts with luck. Yeah. I just want to celebrate <laughs> and encourage and fully endorse the, the careful, thoughtful, non-interventionist approach to these things, not the blind, thoughtless, we should never go anywhere and we should never do anything. There's no enemy bad enough that we shouldn't shoot them in the fucking face at some point. But a genuine appreciation for just how complicated and messy the world is and how difficult these projects that are. And something that like expands our view beyond the mythology of you know the profound success of World War II that acknowledges the awful messiness of it, the many, many failures that happened along the way, the exceptional loss of life that was in some respects, in many places, results of idiotic mistakes that were made and not just absolutely necessary costs that were born. I think that the big problem with Afghanistan was the scope creep. It, it, was the, sure. it was the aspiration to do something much bigger than you go in, you get the bad guys and you get the hell out of there, which is probably what we ought to have done. And it's hard for me to not believe that had we done that, you know, are we still talking about Afghanistan 20 years later? Is the Taliban still doing bad things there? Maybe so. Um, but I can't know. Um, and I think it's important to acknowledge that success was never guaranteed here. And in many respects was always highly unlikely given the murkiness of the objectives. Well, I'm pro Cold War. I'm just gonna tell, I'm just gonna put yeah. that. Out you, you left out awesome. <laughs> I, uh, in addition uh, to dangerous. <laughs> Oof, that was that was. I got a Jonas Savimbi tattoo the other day. That's no. how much I love the Cold War. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's a deep cut. Um, that is a deep cut. I just uh, will say this, um, and this maybe is a little lighter note, but um, you know, memo to Antifa: actual fascists just took over <laughs> Afghanistan. Just, sure. Just saying. I know that you have real, a, real talk. You're you're in a in a twilight struggle against people who insist on using traditional pronouns. But real <laughs> fascists <laughs> exist in the world, and they just took over Afghanistan. Yeah. Well, you do realize, uh, Eli, that uh, we can now count in the twenties, thirties of uh, supposedly serious people who have compared 
various, you know, Viking clad bozos to our own Taliban, including former CIA director, Michael Hayden. He did. Uh, oh which, my God. Yes, he oh, did. He retweeted so, this. Did he really? Um, yeah. Yeah. This, it was a meme, their Taliban, our Taliban. And it was like a two pictures of, uh, you know, entering right. Kabul yeah. and entering Fucking the capital. guy. But, um, but yeah, no, this is, uh, this is what happens uh, every time we've gone from, uh, the Nazis, uh, have taken over, uh, the White House to the Taliban is uh, now uh, invading the capital or had invaded the capital and they're the same thing. Yeah. Very, very strange. But you see a lot of this stuff from supposedly serious people. So yeah, I think Antifa is not... not well, I mean, it's, it's a somewhat serious point that they just... I don't know. Uh, the corruption of our language has mm-hmm. muddled our ability to have a discourse where we're able to recognize evil when we see it because mm-hmm. we are you know we have invested so much unnecessary emotional energy and uh we have just stripped all real meaning of some of these very important words to apply to political adversaries and uh that has a kind of effect which is that uh i don't think if we would have said 15 years ago you know if we pull these 2500 forces the way we're doing it right now the Taliban will take over. I'm not so sure that that would have been something that the American people would have been okay with until they saw the horrific scenes from Kabul. Um, mm. But part of that has to do, as I said, I mean, we have just seen this incredible corru- corruption of our language. Um, so that is a somewhat serious point in my the, the last Substack, or the most recent Substack from uh, Michael Moore, because I'm obsessed with his new Substack, uh, <laughs> the title on it, which nobody has pointed out, is Why I Write. Oh, which is no. borrowed from oh, George no. Orwell well, uh, in his uh, his essay about the corruption of language. And uh, in that essay, there is just littered with, you know, corrupt redefinitions of words. And my favorite, of course, is, uh, you know, uh, in the previous thing that he wrote about Afghanistan, about how we killed a million people in Iraq, which is always my favorite thing that we didn't, because America is the only force in the world and we're ultimately responsible for everything. But, you know, there is no Al-Qaeda. There is no, um, you know, ISIS. There is no Mahdi army. There's none of this stuff. It's all uh, any dead is our dead. So, uh, yeah, this uh, the, the corruption of language in this debate, one can be on the other side of it uh, or be sort of closer to Michael Moore's position when it comes to these things and still be appalled by the way people write and talk about it. So, well, I, one of the anyway, things I anyway. to bring it back Sorry, full no. circle to the great thing about the fifth column is that we can have conversations where we can acknowledge that things are not only messy, but that there are evils on both sides. You don't have to endorse, you don't have to claim that every drone strike killed bad guys and no civilians in order to uh, defend, you know, as I do, U.S. interventions or something like that. Just as you can be opposed to the U.S. uh, role in Afghanistan uh, and uh, still acknowledge how evil the Taliban is, or you can be opposed to the U.S. role in Iraq and recognize how evil, you know, al-Qaeda in Iraq and ISIS are. Yeah, I, it's, it's funny because I think Robbie Suave, uh, Matt's colleague over at Reason, tweeted something that was an interesting tweet. And it, and go go look at it, people, because it it uh, precipitated a lot of interesting responses. And, you know, Robbie said something to the effect of, you know, everyone talks about the media being liberal. Um, and I'm paraphrasing. This is from memory. I was probably drunk when I read it. Uh, but uh, why are they so pro-war and um you know whether or not it's true let's just say it is true that uh, robbie's read on this right one of the things i didn't see people you know 
saying in response was, it just strikes me that the stuff that I've seen is generically defending the new administration. Yes. And I see a lot of stuff that is, you know, this is horrible, this is happening. And then there's some people saying, yeah, they're, they're fucking it up. But on this narrow point, it also seems that they're saying they're, they're fucking up this thing that Trump delivered to him. So I think it's a little more complicated than, than, and again, this is a very, there's a lot of holes in what I just said. I could defend it or maybe flesh it out, but just in the broadest uh, sense, it doesn't strike me that that, that I don't see it that way. That seeing that the media is so um, obsessively pro-war. I get the argument. I do. I see where it's coming from Um, because it certainly isn't the Barbara Lee Gazette every time you pick up the newspaper, but, uh, but yeah. The media was very, you know, when the media turned on Iraq, they turned on Vietnam. They, 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 they it's, it's, it's not. They're not always pro-war. I think the media likes wars when they start. They like images of things blowing up on screens with like night vision and things like that. There's a fair point to say that that's the kind of thing that cable news, in particular, will cover. But you know, um, we've seen it. We, it's not that it's 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 recent memory to know how. Mm-hmm. All of these institutions that are slamming the New York Times that are like devastating piece after devastating piece on Joe Biden and the internal deliberations that led to this debacle. I mean, these were the same. This is the same newspaper that, you know, after Judith Miller in the run up to the Iraq war, you know, we're providing, you know, all of the incredible reporting on things like Abu Ghraib and, and uh, well, I guess I'm a Cy Hirsch, but I mean, you know, and, and exposing why, how there wasn't any WMD. I mean, it, you know, the, it's, it's unfair to sort of say the media has one particular interest when they cover a war, they cover a war. And, uh, you know, that's, that's eventually, I would say it's more likely that they will turn on long wars, which they have. All right. Well, Eli, I, I feel like we are, are keeping you from your, yeah. your fatherly duties. I want you to be there to enjoy every moment of this. Time to change some diapers. <laughs> I'll give you, I'll leave you with the advice I give everyone. Soak in every moment. I will. This, this small human evolves quickly. Yes. The, the moments where you have like shit all over your hands and they're, they can't hold their neck up straight and you, yeah. like they just become all of these different people at all of these various stages. And it is, <laughs> it's the most remarkable experience in the universe. She will be the best and worst person you've ever met in your entire <laughs> life. And it is, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. What, what Camille I, is I'm saying just waiting is, on her to turn on me, my, my daughter to turn on me at 16. I hate you, Precisely. daddy. I love him. Right. is everything yeah. I ever wanted. I'm going to give him all of me. <laughs> that is, I'm, I'm waiting this for is, it. I know it's coming. And, I was going to give the you know, shortcut version of what he's from I Korea. Was saying. really great. Was but. enjoy it now because your kid is ultimately going to fucking hurt you. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no, no. And do horrible things to you. No, in, in 19... Daddy, years. I'm a capital B black woman. Can't you... Don't in you nine... know how hard it is for me in America? 19 years after, I, her, first, know, after her first year at Wellesley. She's going to come back. I'm going to be like, you know, Eli, <laughs> I know you have spent a lot of time writing about this country called Israel, but I'm here to tell you they are an evil occupying Zionist power. And I want nothing to do with them. Uh, that's why I have joined uh, Students for Hamas. Well, <laughs> it's coming. I know it's coming. Just, okay. You you know what onesie yeah. you need to send Eli Lake in the mail, dear yeah. listeners. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank ladies, you. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks uh, for joining us. Sid Blumenthal. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, All right, kids are going to love you. I know. Well, thanks for hanging out, brother. Uh, thank you for having me. New methods of attack.
The Trojan horse. That's good. Be a the father. Column, if not, a bother. <laughs> Gosh, I, that, that horn section, though. I'm, is there a couple of hip-hop songs that use that? Uh, Be your father to your child. I don't know, because that is... Yeah, that's at OG. That's right. Uh, Boston's at OG and the Bulldogs. The fifth yeah. car. Um, yeah, that's a re- I didn't know that Ed OG was uh, the Shelby Steele of hip hop. Uh, the, the William Bennett of hip hop. <laughs> Be a father of your child. But, you know. There's always been a, a strain of hip hop that's castigating the community and encouraging them to do better. One of Tupac's biggest hits was um, Brenda's Got a Baby, which is all about out of wedlock childbirth stuff. And was not necessarily encouraging that behavior. He even takes a swipe at people abusing welfare. In 2021, that is textbook racism. No, it's all Moynihan Report. Every rap song is the Moynihan Report. All sorts of stuff like that. We're all in the same gang. Yes, that's right. Self-destruction. <laughs> self-destruction. Self-destruction. Like, I've said this before, and maybe it was just on the Patreon, so I can repeat it again and people won't be too bored. But uh, black comedy is always has always been the most... Kind of Bill Cosby esque, you know, in yeah, yeah. not in his in his have this drink uh, right, phase. Right. Pull your but pants in his up. Pull up your pull your pants not, up, which I think Spanish overlapped with his, yeah, <laughs> which overlapped <laughs> with that phase. Weirdly enough, um, but you know, you listen to all this stuff. I mean, Chris Rock stuff. Uh-huh. Um, uh huh. Of course, uh, black, black Pryor, people, black people and niggas. Yeah, yeah, that which was which you know was was very popular back in the day. But it is, uh, you know, Richard Pryor's thing when he talks about filming Bustin' Loose with Gene Wilder, going to Arizona State Penitentiary, where he says it's, it, where the entire prison population was black. And his joke is it's funny because there's no black people in Arizona. And, um, <laughs> but he has this thing about where he says, you know, I'm going in there and I look at all these brothers and they're warriors. The warriors, these black men in here, and I can't believe it. And he says, you know, and I got to know them, and I got to talk to them. And and he does that that Richard Pryor pause, and he says, "Thank God for penitentiaries." And the whole thing <laughs> is about. And he said, before uh, I went to the penitentiary, I thought black people kill people by accident. <laughs> oh and it's just this whole thing about how these people are like bad people. And he thought that it was. So there's always that theme running through stuff, and it's like funny. The hip hop is the same way. Yeah, you know, it's he, different. There's a universe of cultural critiques you, you're allowed to make. It's like yeah. toxic masculinity is bad. But mm. if you're one of those people who wants to talk about, like, say, black culture, quote unquote, um, that you are actually the bad one and you have to leave that alone. And it, it can be very difficult to navigate all of that and figure out what's what. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I feel like we, we I'm confident we've talked about this before at some point. But it's yeah, still, probably talked about the, the lack of cancellations of people like Ice Cube, who uh, mm, has said a lot yeah. of things about Jews and uh, kind of some misogynist lyrics. A few, <laughs> just uh, a few. Anti, it's just a few anti-Korean songs, uh, yeah. Black Korea on America's Most yeah. Wanted, etc. Just you know, you can still do family movies. Yeah, yeah. He's not the host of Jeopardy, obviously. Which, if you're the host of Jeopardy, you have to be fired. So that's different. Anyway, what are we talking about now? I'm wondering if we left any stones unturned on the Afghanistan stuff. I mean, I'm confident that we did. Trust me, our listeners will tell us. <laughs> they enjoy doing that. 
telling yeah, us. Yeah, well, fine. then I'll, I'll ask you directly, Matt. Were you surprised by Eli's concession to the libertarian non-interventionist position? Oh, you know, we've gotten him. Uh, he's moved. We, he's moved thirty-seven degrees or yeah. so, I suppose. But like, it always comes back to, uh, and we're not talking out of school. It's fucking Eli, but uh, yeah, because uh, he doesn't. <laughs> Uh, but uh it comes back to the sunk cost throwing good money after bad one of the first pieces i wrote for uh, reason online back in 2002 or 2003 uh, no later than 04 but i think 2003 howard dean was a uh, the anti-war candidate right like that's what we all remember him as being he caught fire on the grassroots left the net roots remember those guys yeah um yeah, still have the net yeah. roots conference uh, yep but like he he, at a time when Democrats were still like, uh, let's nominate John Kerry because he was a, uh, he was a soldier once, I guess. Um, and there was this sort of this cowed, fearful, we, we have to show that we are macho. Dean's like, fuck it. The Iraq war is wrong. Um, I'm going to talk about it. Uh, what's interesting uh, about that uh, is that, one, Howard Dean was in favor of all of the last like seven interventions, both in uh, in Kosovo uh, the original in Bosnia, the first Iraq war. I mean, he, the, uh, uh, you know, right and left, he was a pro intervention. So this anti-war guy, um, just happened to be against that war. And so he got all this anti-war, uh, momentum on his side, uh, at the time. And even he, his, uh, do you remember, do you remember what he actually ran on policy wise having to do with Iraq? He wanted to surge it to 500,000 troops. That was the anti-war candidate because of intervention logic. Intervention logic is that, well, we're here. We have to either do the finish the job, which was the big uh, thing after the first uh, uh, Gulf War was that uh, the first uh, George Bush didn't go all the way to Baghdad. And so we left all the stuff on the table um, and finish the job wasn't just a Republican thing too. a lot of uh, centrist hawkish democrats like then al gore um all uh cottoned onto that a lot of people signed a lot of documents in the late 90s um talking about how they wanted to kind of finish that but you just the iraq you liberation your, act from 1998 the iraq <laughs> liberation act a lot of democratic uh, fingerprints on it you can talk yourself into and have a good argument for in many ways um never leaving a place and the reality and i'm the thing that i was gladdest to see uh Eli acknowledge uh, towards the uh, end there was, and that was his answer to the question of what's different from 20 years ago is that he has learned that there is not an open-ended public appetite for this thing. Because what I have noticed, and it's been frustrating to watch people's reaction to Afghanistan right now, um, the David Frums of the world, a lot of other people, the people who hit those notes that frustrate you too, uh, Camille, about like seriousness. You know, we're not we're not a morally serious country because X, Y, and Z. Those people have done such a consistently piss poor job. Not just, I think, in advocating what they've advocated for, which has been bad policy, but in not uh, recognizing political opinion in a democratic country to mm -hmm. be. An operational constraint. Yes. It's a constraint. <laughs> yes. If people aren't down with that shit, you're, that, you can't you do can't it. You, I mean, and Moynihan, you mentioned like uh, Vietnam revisionist books. What are what is one of the uh, biggest through lines in the things? It's like we should have stuck it out. 
We mm-hmm. should have had the fortitude to do it. Just do it. I mean, it's like the John McCain thing. Like, you know, why not be have our troops there in 50 or 100? Yeah, years? the slight difference in the Vietnam one, just a, a minor clarification, is that the argument is typically we were winning and then we chose to lose. That's well, right. Rather, right. Rather than, than Afghanistan is that we're losing and we should just remain losing forever because inevitably there's going to be a collapse and the collapse is going to be bad. It's just, you know. Well, some, some people make a similar argument. We, we surrendered. We didn't lose. That sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, look, and, and you could make the argument, I don't believe it at all, that if one remained in Afghanistan, kept the Taliban at bay, and then, you know, had a kind of not prosperous at all, but hopefully down the line, this would be the idea of a prosperous liberal city, a major kind of city like Kabul, who's, that is very different than the provinces where the Taliban has uh, a lot of support. Um, that that over time would just, but that hasn't happened, by the way. I mean, 20 years is a long time. But the long idea time. is always that you you keep going and you transform society over a long period of time. But that doesn't, I mean, look, what happened, I mean, Camille brought up the Cold War. The, the transformation of those societies was that no one ever wanted to live under them. That's just mm-hmm. simply a fact. The majority of mm-hmm. people did not want to live under them. And even the ones that remained, like, you know, the, the, the exception of probably Laos is the only one, but Vietnam, uh, China, they had to pretend that they were the guys that they were fighting. They had to become more free market, more free ter- trade, more capitalist, allow people businesses. And the ones that didn't do that, which is Laos and, and Cuba, are still failing and, you know, have losses in street protests. But, you know, Cuba is a great example of what happens when you don't make those concessions and you just allow this stuff. I mean, look, this is a kind of similar thing in Afghanistan in the sense of like nobody wants you there. And that was the thing that happened in Iraq because there are two things that were true at the same time and nobody decided, everyone decided to erase the first part because it it made the argument too complicated. There are a number of accounts from journalists that the Americans were greeted as liberators. That's true. There's a lot of them. I can point them to you. There's tons of uh, that happened within the race to Baghdad. And there's a very famous Guardian headline where somebody yells democracy, whiskey, sexy. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> yes. That's what they were excited about. Uh, Frank Bartman made a song. Yeah, yeah, song? exactly. Yeah, that's right. From uh, from Mr. Teague's Dr. Dr. Frank. Uh, um and but what of course you know one side remembers that and the other side doesn't remember it at all. But of course there's a second thing which is like thank you now get the fuck up. And <laughs> that was kind of the same thing with the Soviets. It was like you know people in the East Bloc were like oh are we being liberated? We don't know because they've actually invaded Poland prior to the war. But are we being liberated? Okay thank you now please get the fuck out. And that is kind of the just sort of general appetite that people have for invading forces. Thank you for doing us a solid. Now get the fuck out. Had we been in Grenada until last week, I don't think the Grenadians would be too happy about it. But otherwise, they kind of pro-American and there's a positive kind of look at, from some people at what happened in 1983 in Grenada. You know, it was a tiny little thing. But, you know, that's the simple thing is like winning the war is easy, uh, you know, securing the peace, changing the brains of people who live there to relook at, you know, democracy and government. Uh, the way way we do. I mean, our system's clearly better, but you're not going to get that. Sorry, you're just not going to get it. Um, and what happens is that there's always a, there's some appetite for it, which is why in 1975 in Saigon and why in 2021 in Kabul, people are hanging on to to the bottoms of helicopters and planes because there are some people that just don't want to get the fuck out of there, but not enough to sustain it. So, I mean, it's depressing, but anyway. It's very depressing. Very depressing. 
but depression shouldn't shouldn't allow you to say, well, let's let's do a troop surge. That's always the thing. And there was a there was a bit of an interesting argument about this between Josh Barrow and uh, Ben Smith on Twitter. A bit of a, a, hmm. bit of a like an angry one, too. A little bitchy. That, yeah, a little bitchy. That uh, uh, I think it was uh, was it C J Chilvers what Shivers Chivers uh, from New York Times. Um, who I think wrote a very good book on the Kalashnikov. I think that was the same guy. But he said something about like, do something, our translators. And this is actually an interesting kind of moral and uh, argument and uh, debate about journalism. And Josh Barrow basically said, hey, you know, this is the wrong way of looking at it because you're too close to the story, basically. I mean, these are your friends. These are people who have helped you. But as a journalist, you can't be dictating and guiding your coverage based on your personal relationship with people who will be adversely affected by the Taliban taking over in Kabul. And Ben Smith came to the defense of, you know, his coworker and said, no, journalists are humans. Uh, more or less. I, mean, I think I'm giving Ben probably short shrift on that, but that's basically what he said. And I don't it's a bit of a dick move, honestly, to like, uh, to imply, uh, and I'm friendly with, with, with everybody involved probably, yeah. but like to imply that the coverage of the paper is dictated by the sympathy and the worry that certain staffers have for the translators and the people that they've worked with. I'm sure. Yeah. It's, is it going to color things? I'm sure somewhat, but also like the paper is going to be the paper. Mm -hmm. It's going to be a, a sprawling organism. So you weren't buying Josh's argument, really? No, uh, no. I mean, I, there's, there is. I think it overlaps with the argument, and which I think it is generally true, that national security reporters and also reporters who work in theaters of conflict tend to be more um, sort of like default interventionist uh, or like a status quo of America being everywhere than average journalists do and certainly the population does. I think that's true. Um, the I don't think that the locus of the problem is people saying, you know, my friend Abdul is going to die uh, because we bungled the uh, the evacuation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a bit of a dick move to like get in there in the middle of someone expressing that concern and maybe trying to do something or at least just blowing off steam and say, well, actually, you know, that's the problem with all your media coverage. It's like, you know what? The, the the problem is you're being a dick on Twitter again in public. And you can make the argument about the pro war tilt or the pro-interventionist uh, Borg blob tilt. Um, and I've, I've probably made it in a lot of different places. There's a way to do it without like stepping on someone who's got skin in the game and friends skin in the game um, just to make your dick point. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. By the way, yeah. um, David Frum, you mentioned David Frum. Um, I was just scrolling through his Twitter feed and I know David well and I've um, known him for a long time. I've talked to him a long time. Um, but, uh, 97% of the tweets in the past, uh, two weeks are about vaccines and vaccination and about, uh, people getting, should get vaccinated. Various. And there's a couple of things he said, he wrote something wow. about, about Afghanistan, but one would assume that it would be, you know, 99%, but, uh, but no, uh, it's weird. I mean, I just, and I'm not, that's not an accusation in any way of that he's, himself abrogating his responsibilities but it just I, that's why i ask eli that question of like how i'm really interested in how people uh change their mind about things over long periods of time particularly people who are you know make a life about it make write books about it uh make it part of who they are um, i saw from i saw from uh uh in passing 
make big hay out of like a Russian pipeline agreement that was changed in 2012. So he was, uh, you know, pointing the fingers at the real criminal still. Well, do you remember um, the Russian pipeline uh, or the pipeline conspiracy with the Afghan war in 2001? I mean, that was a that was one of the weirdo ones. The Nation magazine published a book. It was a conspiracy yeah. book about this. The I think the Village Voice had a bunch of stuff, you know, because there's always at the beginning. And this is the thing that, you know, clouds uh, this stuff. And when somebody wrote us and Matt and I, uh, Camille was uh, ill, uh, feeling better now, by the way, as you can tell. But uh, <laughs> we did a Patreon episode and we re re read an email from somebody that said essentially, you know, you, you don't seem to like Noam Chomsky very much, but you have very similar Chomskyite views on foreign policy in some senses. Um, so what, what is the difference? You know, and it's, I thought it was an interesting uh, question in a lot of ways, but this is the thing that when you think back about the beginning of the war in Afghanistan is of all of the muck that you had to wade through on the anti-war side to get to what, you know, basically Camille's um, soliloquy there uh, at the end, talking to Eli about the folly of a lot of this stuff, but it was not that it was not that it was, it was a bigger idea of empire. It was a bigger idea of conspiracy about capitalism and how capitalism drives the, the, you know, um, the, the States and not, not in that kind of, um, what is the Leviathan book? What am I, why am I blanking on this? Libertarian? Crisis and Le Crisis Leviathan. And Leviathan. Yeah. Hmm. Not even that sense, but just in a big kind of conspiratorial way that there's a pipeline, there's oil, there's Halliburton. And there is so much anti-Muslim animus, which that, is, you know, oh God, famously yeah, is governed American we, we only foreign go to policy in the late nineties. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was, that was actually the, in the Michael Moore thing. We it was indeed. War, we only go to war with Brown people. Um, yeah. I don't know if he'd be satisfied if on our side Denmark, in but... Yugoslavia. <laughs> yes, yes, that, yes, I think exactly. it would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it emits a few things, but yeah. Yeah, but you know, whatever. But anyway, it's it is. It's been an interesting couple of weeks because I've I've given myself a little bit of time, considering we were all kind of taking the last bit of the the summer to to breathe, and look and like closing Twitter and looking back at a lot of the stuff that was written, uh, said. Uh, at the beginning mm -hmm. of this so-called war on terror, I cannot believe a book has not been written about it. I, I cannot. It, it, have there been books written about Iraq? I mean, too many to to you know contain in your house or in a library. Afghanistan, fewer, but a lot. But what I'm sort of interested in is how everyone responded to it. The response, the initial response. I mean, we were going to get Jake Siegel, and I hope we can get him. But, um, our, our, our dear friend, uh, Jake, who, uh, you know, joined the military after 9-11, much like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Jake, Jake's mm -hmm. a New Yorker, uh, as you can tell when he talks. Kind of sounds like a New Yorker. <laughs> kind of sounds like a guy like in an old movie about what the you, Yankees. What are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. Fucking, these fucking Taliban, you know. Uh, but uh, also a brilliant guy, so I don't want to make him sound like, you know, a member of the Lucchese family. But he... Mm -hmm. <laughs> He joined the military, right? And a lot of people started blogs as Matt was there for the inception of that and gave the term war blogging its name. And, Sorry. Uh, you know, but out of nowhere, Matt and I have talked about this a million times. We, we always, like, a million times we've made jokes about names that you don't hear anymore. Like, I wonder what Stephen Den Best thinks about that. Well, like, like, what, like, what happened he died. to these people? Oh, he did. He died. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Nice, um, Michael. Well, I mean, was he old? Well, he wasn't murdered, was he? 
I mean, I just um, like I didn't know. I didn't, people die. I'm sorry. As far as I know. Yeah, um, but also like that. Uh, not to go too far down that uh, memory lane, but like um, the reason why there was an explosion uh, in the what used to be called blogosphere at the time, um, less uh, about Afghanistan, more just about nine eleven, is that the intellectual and particularly emotional responses that one would encounter at the time in media were intensely uh, disappointing and alienating. Yeah, I, I'm putting yeah. it, I'm putting it very nicely. Um, and yes, there was some, you know, uh, chest beating by a lot of people um, uh, both in that blogosphere, but also in the mainstream media. I saw uh, one tweet going around yesterday that was viral from like a Thomas L. Friedman column in, uh, in oh, yeah, I saw that too. late uh, 2001 or early 2002. It was basically his Afghanistan version of the column that he <laughs> yeah, wrote right. about suck on this, or at least that's uh like that's that's what we have to do sometimes to a country is like throw it into a corner. Like the the level of commentary. Um and I don't want the world to forget that it was the level of this is the pro interventionist side, the level of commentary on the right, including by a lot of people who are in high moral dudgeon against Donald Trump, Max boot comes to mind some of mm-hmm. his writings for the weekly standard and elsewhere the world war four essay by norman Podhoritz in commentary um stuff david Frum wrote his his uh, infamous unpatriotic conservatives mm-hmm. um piece for national review which targeted a lot of people who i disagree with about various things but was uh ultimately a very uh brutish act uh, attempting to expel people from the conservative movement, not just being as non-conservatives, but like being actively anti-American. Um, there was a lot of really, really, really bad argumentation and thinking, and it was done um, not just in the service of of promoting war, which is uh, grave enough, um, but it was done with like the the wind at their sails from the most powerful, like, uh, elements of the world. There's something, I mean, National Review had a, a collection of essays about George W. Bush called The Right Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember <laughs> like, like, like it was the name the, of David Frum's book, I think, too, is The Right Man. It could it, it could be actually uh, uh, that I'm conflating that with another one that was just a collection of speeches that maybe showed a picture of his dick or something like that. On the cover. It was a bad time, people, is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, it was and, it was uh, it and, was, an, and it was ha- in fact a David from book, by the way. Yeah. And I have not. And I, I again, am glad uh, for Eli's uh, friendship and his contributions to this podcast uh, and his intellectual honesty in saying, look, I've changed in this way um, and as reality has gone this way. We might disagree, but I know that he's uh, he's beginning from uh, a level of intellectual honesty that mm-hmm. so many people who have advocated, especially on behalf of those wars, but also sometimes against them, um, have sh- like it's it's astonishing in these moments of high crisis to see how many people like, yep, I was right all along. <laughs> well, it, 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 <laughs> and, I've got nothing to revisit. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's funny because you, know, you talk about people on the right, but I mean, uh, the number of people on the left are of a certain age and were most of them were young at the time. You know, whether the Matt Iglesias of the world, um, people like that. I think that guy, Oliver Willis, I remember. He's always on Twitter. I remember being pro-war. Um, all of them. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, defame him if he, if that's wrong. But I seem to recall that. So I can't be sure about it. But there are a lot of people like that. And there are people like 
you know, on the left that were pro-Iraq war. And I'm not talking about Afghanistan here. I'm talking about, about Iraq. And so I come it's back Pete, to this a lot. Peter Beinart. Peter, right? Be oh, Peter Beinart wrote a book about it. Wrote a book. Uh, and the subtitle of the book was How Liberals and Only Liberals Can Win the War on yeah. Terror. And I'll never yeah. forget that subtitle because it was so absurd. And, you know, ran, he was the editor-in-chief of the New Republic that was, uh, you know, owned and operated by Marty Peretz, the the un unflinching Zionist. And now Peter is, is a kind of an anti or pro Palestinian type. If, if you were to use the language of that, of that, um, of the other side, but you know, it, it's interesting to see how that happened. And I don't, I'm, I'm mystified by, by people. I get, I guess I get why people want to bury it because it makes us all look bad, but hmm. there's something to be learned in it in how yeah. so many people who were not traditional hawks, you know, consumed and metabolized 9-11 and said, we must do something. And they're learning about these cultures, buying Bernard Lewis books, you know, buying whatever <laughs> you can get as they're formulating their own opinions, which is just a natural thing to do. But the difference is they have a platform. We're all doing mm. it all the time. But when, you know, you write a column about it in 2002, you're pretending that you know these things. You're pretending you're not telling people that you just read them 25 minutes ago and are convinced by it. Um, and I mentioned uh, on the podcast with Andrew, because uh, so much of this stuff has been swimming around in my head, was and someone tweeted at me, thanking me for recommending the column and said it was a beautiful call, and it is, was a, a person who went to Iraq, joined the, joined the military, and went to Iraq because they read the work of Christopher Hitchens and said, I think mm. this is important and was killed in Iraq. Um, and Christopher's piece about it and Christopher spoke at the funeral and went and felt um, a very serious sense of ownership, uh, shall we say, uh, of that and uh, wrote a, a, a story about it in Vanity Fair about kind of wrestling with that, which I think is really fascinating. And mm. very few people actually did that. Um, and that became the crusade of the last bit of his life. And, you know, when Slate had a little uh, uh, kind of forum of people, to, what do you think about your position? on Chris was the only one who didn't back down, said, I'm, I'm still right. And here's why. Yeah. And it's funny to go read that because the one thing I challenge you to do, if you have an open mind, if you like good writing and you're not saying like, I knew this from the beginning, you guys are silly to even debate this or even talk about it. Go and read uh, the collection of essays from Slate that was turned into a little book called The Long Short War. And tell me what you think of them. I'm being totally honest. I mean, you could, even with hindsight, tell me if you think that you're not surprised that somebody read those and, and joined the military and was actually swayed by them because sometimes they're very compelling. And uh, yeah. it doesn't mean they're right, obviously, but it means they're compelling. And, you know, it was, it was a moral case in a lot of ways. But uh, I mean, I, I, think I, can look. I think I've acknowledged in the past or said openly that, that I definitely was reading Hitch's work around that time. Mm -hmm. And Thomas Friedman as well, actually. September 11th, 2001, I'm 20 years old, undergraduate at the University of Maryland. I found the arguments fairly persuasive. It seemed like a very realistic appraisal of the circumstance. And there was a moral argument on offer. And I do sometimes worry about the anti-war establishment and the penchant to latch on to conspiratorial thinking about the military industrial complex and the, the war profiteers that are driving all of the policy decisions and that are responsible for all of the bad outcomes. And to say that is not to suggest that there aren't monstrous war profiteers 
and that there isn't grafted corruption that people should be skewered for publicly. There's like, a lot of those it, are yeah. things. Those are things that exist. There's a hell of a lot of it, but I don't think that's what's driving policy. And I don't think it it is irrational to have a very sober, clear-eyed appreciation for the fact that interventions have spillover effects and consequences, but but standing still can have some pretty nasty, heinous consequences as well. And making difficult yeah, decisions and adjudicating those difficult decisions and appraising people's genuine sort of good intentions in certain circumstances is totally appropriate. <laughs> I would add that we didn't get into it with him, but I think it, it's an absolute factor here. And, and it, it tilts me further in the in the camp of get the hell out, even though it's messy, um, is that the military brass, not the people who are on the ground uh, making the best of the situation they can have, but the decision makers in the military have a lot to answer for in the way that they have advised and lied to presidents uh, in the way that they've advised, misled, probably lied to um, Congress. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there, there's a generation of people who, um, were able to extend their own kind of, uh, personal fiefdoms and domains, um, by sort of humoring, uh, Trump's anti-interventionist instincts and then working, uh, around him on this side right. to right. make sure that none of it ever happened. That's not how that should work. Right. You know, we have civilian control over the military. And when it's being thwarted, that's a hell of a good reason to to you know, like, as Donald Trump once said, you know, like, let's we've got to knock this off so we can see what the hell's going on. Um, at some point, uh, these autopilot situations in foreign policy um, lead to that. Uh, and so in the same way that Vietnam led to an entire rethinking of all of the way that military is done. Um, right. And thankfully, it, it, it helped lead to the end of the draft and other things and on uh, the professionalization. But there's a whole series of reforms that came out of that. There, I think, needs to be some reforms at the strategic command level uh, and some humility thrown in there. Um, people should have to answer for actively misleading the president of the United States in the conduct of a war. That is a sign. I mean, you don't have to be conspiratorial about it, but it's a sign that something's messed up um, and that you should err, therefore, on the side of giving people like that maybe a little bit less power. It might it might be the case, and this, I'm just speculating here, that people who are trained to fight like to fight, like to use mm. those skills. You have a fast car, you want to bring it out on the track. You don't want to sort of mm -hmm. putt-putt around. And unfortunately... When people are making those decisions, oftentimes um, they uh, fall into that category of, of people. You know, I mean, it's it's the it's the you know warrior cop thing that uh, Radley's written about and we've talked about on the show. Of like, you give somebody an MRAP, they're going to fucking use it. And on a mm -hmm. bigger scale, you give somebody a military, they want to use it. And yeah, yeah. Sometimes that's not the greatest idea. And yeah, yeah. as I said, uh, you know, and as you and I were and I were talking about, is that. The understandable instinct after 9-11 is something that I keep going back to because I desperately want somebody to remember why they thought the way that they did and kind of crystallize those feelings and say that this is what drove us in the direction we went was because everybody was stunned and shocked. And this we fought foreign wars. We didn't see anything on our on our um, territory, you know, except for sort of Oklahoma City was the closest thing. Right. And that was a, a couple of fucking losers in in you know the woods in Michigan, 
which by the way, also created because people want bigger explanations, a whole, you know, industry of conspiracy theories about the larger movement of, you know, a Nazi camp in Kansas, et cetera. But, you know, when that happened, like in front of our eyes in New York City, and that was, I think Andrew asked a, a really interesting question. I thought it was a really fascinating question. How would all of this happen if it didn't happen in New York City? If a couple of planes hit, you know, uh, something in Iowa and, and Cedar Rapids or and killed a lot of people. Is it different if it's outside, you know, your town of Manhattan? I mean, look, there is a there was a fake um, storm, which, for, for instance, was for some, I mean, for instance, for some reason was was French. It was named Henri. And like the French had quit. It just said, no, I'm not doing it. And it was, every time I turned it on, it was constant coverage. And it's because it was hitting New York. And everybody who's talking to you all the time is in New York. Fucking storm hits like, you know, Topeka, nobody cares. But it's hitting New York. And it's like, we're talking about it all the time because this is where we are. And yeah, I think that's a good question of what would have happened had it not been New York City and Washington, D.C. If it had been other, even other big cities, um, you know. Even L.A. yeah. Yeah, maybe even L.A. Um, but, but, you know, did that have an effect on the shock, uh, to, and our, just the great shock to our system of like, you know, remember people who were incredibly anti-war, um, it took them a little bit, but Golly Green mm. Carter, the editor of Vanity Fair was so ahead of himself. We're ahead of ourselves. This is the, the point of this. We're ahead of ourselves in every way, not about military only, not about foreign intervention only. Green Carter declared the death of death irony. Of irony. It's yeah. over because of what just happened down the street. It's over. We can't live in a world with irony when things like this happen. And you look back at that five years hence, and it seems crazy. Now it seems completely ludicrous. So it shifted people's brains and scrambled their brains in ways beyond let's you know invade their countries and, to quote Ann Coulter, convert them to Christianity. Because Ann Coulter now, um, if you ever hear of her anymore, is stridently anti-war and like loves AOC when she talks about <laughs> like it's absolutely true. I mean, she's was- uh, she's uh, almost defending Biden against the criticism for the way that he's withdrawn from Afghanistan, saying that the Borg, you know, is is once again the swamp is trying to uh, pull it back in, but it's the yeah. right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. she believes it too. <laughs> yeah, culture. Change. yeah. Anyway, well, we we should probably get out of here. I do um, maybe want to just throw something on the table quickly, which I suspect we'll revisit in some detail later. But I'm I know we've been paying some attention to the to the COVID surge that has been happening around the country, and I think the last time we had a longer conversation about this, Delta was a thing that was kind of lurking, and we were starting to see case counts increase in Florida, but hospitalization rates. Um, and deaths hadn't yet started to spike. Um, and clearly things are more complicated now. Uh, and you see places like Israel and Iceland that have these really exceptionally high rates of vaccination that are still dealing with these surges. Um, vaccine efficacy, um, I think, is still pretty high. The vaccines still seem to mm-hmm. offer a great deal of protection in terms of preventing you from getting a really, really bad case of COVID. Um, and in terms of you know preventing hospitalization and death, it's also the case that you know the, to the extent these these outbreaks are happening. They're they're happening amongst people who are vaccinated, which is you know a daunting thing. Good but, results, by the way, today out of Israel uh, for mm-hmm. the booster shot from Pfizer, uh, which right. is very very promising too. Yeah, and um, I mean, I just it strikes me that when I look at the media coverage and when I hear the public discourse um, and statements from lawmakers and public officials about um, about the 
pandemic and about strategy and about priorities. I hear, you know, the Delta variant, oh my God, vaccines, oh my God, schools, open them, close them forever, masks, no masks. But the thing that seems to be conspicuously absent from all of this beyond, you know, getting people vaccinated, um, I really never hear anyone talking about like the end game and what the actual federal and state public health objectives are. I don't know what the United States or really most countries are actually working towards. I've, I've read a number of columns about the illusion of herd immunity, given what's happening with the Delta variant. But what what are we what are we actually working towards? And to the extent we're not having those conversations, and I can't really give an answer to that question, it seems like it's going to be very difficult to actually try and gauge odds of success or have any kind of meaningful conversation about the trade-offs and the risks that we actually face. I don't even know what kind of clock we're working against to the extent one exists. Um, and we're still seeing countries like Australia deal with massive lockdowns and the public, the civil Dude, unrest that's created by crazy. that. Did the you stuff see that in, thing that in Paris, Glenn, like uh, the Glenn yeah, Greenwell yeah. posted? No, that I didn't shit see it. Is fucking insane. They're like tracking people down. Uh, and, yeah. as, and, as, and the news deviants. report was like a North Korean news report. It was like Crockett, they got like him. This. Thank God, he was fucking yeah, infecting yeah. people in an elevator. Can you believe it? Like, it feels what? like uh, like so many of our public conversations just kind of unmoored yeah. from the things that ought to really, really matter uh, in terms of figuring out like what policies make the most sense, but also what the fuck are we trying to accomplish here? There's so much about our approach to COVID and even the media response to COVID that that just kind of is eerily similar to the Afghanistan strategy exactly or lack right. thereof. Yes. Like the bizarre 100%. scope creep. The what are we kind trying of, to We got achieve? a plan. We don't have a plan. The the surges and masks. I think that's right. And the surges and, you know, lockdowns and all kinds. It's just, it's so weird. And we're not having serious conversations. We're not demanding those serious conversations either. Well, just answer the question. They, 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 what are we trying to achieve? I, I have no that idea. That is a question <laughs> nobody is asking. Are yeah. we, like, you know, are we trying to live with this? Mm -hmm. And if we're all vaccinated, we can live with it. Or if enough and of suppression us doesn't seem like an it. option anymore. Like it just isn't it, on it. It, it isn't an option anymore, but it does seem like in a lot of places, that's precisely what we're doing. I'm, I'm reading like competing uh, uh, evaluations of the, the benefits of lockdowns, not merely, you know, the economic trade-off um, of like shuttering things, but from an epidemiological standpoint, given where we are in the pandemic, it seems like it is possible that in a number of instances, you're going to get COVID at some point. It's best that mm -hmm. you get vaccinated before you do, but there are risks to not getting like the Delta variant versus some future variant of the thing. Like that's it, interesting. There seems to be no debate. We should be talking about that. One, yeah, it seems to be no debate on when we're talking about Delta and previous iterations of it, that if you're vaccinated, you're not going to die. It just seems to be the case, right? I mean, we know this, the numbers are pretty clear that if you get the vaccine and there's a breakthrough case, you are not going to die. You're probably not going to be, be hospitalized. Unless you're in the in the uh, the 
the super at risk category. You're a morbidly obese, eighty seven year old man. Exactly, and those people are probably going to die for for a variety of other reasons too. I mean, I don't even consider that at that point. It's like you are so frail and broken that your risk of dying is pretty high anyway. And we can't protect you. We can't protect everybody. You can't mm-hmm. take cars off the road because they're going to be accidents. People yeah. are going to die, but driving is actually a great benefit for us, right? We get around places in our good ship across the country. There's a point at which we have to say what level of risk are we willing to tolerate and that you can't seem like a partisan jerk because for some stupid reason, this is a fucking partisan issue in so many ways. When you say, if you don't get vaccinated and you get COVID and you die, I don't have any sympathy for you. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have, I'm also not the person that says like, oh, they posted something on Facebook. Let's dig it up and then do a a, a victory dance around their grave. I don't think that's, I, I understand why people don't want to get, I get it. Uh, I disagree with it, but I get it. I get the instinct. But there's a certain point at which, like, if you don't want it and you, it spreads to you and you die, I don't know what to tell you because there's a certain point, like, it's the same thing, like, put your fucking seatbelt on. You know, I don't, I, I don't know, like, at what point is my life uh, going to be impacted in such a way that I can't do my job, I can't see people, I can't go to restaurants because of those people. And I'm not going to I, I let them do their thing. But don't screw up my life because of it. Uh, I don't know uh, if you've heard, Michael, but New York City has different ideas about screwing up your life because of other people. Oh, yeah. Than, no, uh, I know. Than, e- than East Egg does. <laughs> so next time I you're know. in town. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I still haven't seen it. Like, I'm, I'm, don't see masks often out here still. I guess it's because people come out and they're excited. Like, it's like going to the topless beach or something. <laughs> come to, not a lot of here either. <laughs> don't have to wear it. <laughs> You know, oh God! I don't wear it. I just, the I mean, dirsh. I'm not wearing a mask because I don't, I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm a diabetic, but I'm a type one diabetic. I'm, I'm the real diabetic, not the fake one. Sorry guys. Um, but you're not part of our tribe. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I'll, I'll take my risks, uh, but I've been vaccinated. And yeah. if they tell me that I should, the, the balance of evidence is that I should get another shot. Okay. Okay. I'm not uh, a, I, like. Let, shall we? Uh, shall we put a pin on this bad yeah, boy yeah, and, and agree? Agree to reconvene uh, and talk specifically about this and all the aspects of it because it's crazy and the media yeah. stuff makes me want to put my thumbs on some Adam's yes. apples. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It is so incredibly bad. I like Mad there's Matt. A, <laughs> there's a couple of people who I want to name uh, and shame. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, Mad, so, mad. Find, find right some now. smart, some smart interlocutor mad, as well. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. All right. Well, I feel like get we've the done guy good with the mustache there. who looks like Super Mario, but wears the. <laughs> lab coat Who's that dude? He's got a lab coat on. He's like, dude, it's like being in a commercial. He's like, I get it. You're a doctor. Why are you wearing a fucking lab coat? Honestly, it's like it's like you know the version of that in music is when they interview Roger McGuinn and he always has a twelve string with him. It's like yeah, I know you're in the Bruins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop. You know, you know, I don't need a baseball bat to know that you're on the Red Sox. Just fucking talk to me. But uh, we can get that guy on. Yeah, probably won't come on now. <laughs> Send this to his agent, or we'll, def- or we'll definitely come on now. <laughs> It'd be great. We should get him on, and we all wear lab coats. <laughs> just be like without saying a word. Yeah. Wait, you don't like my style? It's like it's I, it's I white. Should actually it's have summer. A, a lab coat. I just wear around. I should have one. I'm gonna. I'm actually <laughs> you gonna should do go that. and start dispensing like like unsolicited advice to random people in stores with a lab coat on, like Doctor Love. Say. Yeah. Like that also, like Florida. lab coat and just a really small black speedo and nothing else. Mm. <laughs> shirt. You, you no would shirt like that, Matt Welch. <laughs> I would. You would I, like that. You would love that. 
I have life. Yeah, I'm you just talking. Yeah, I'm have. just talking about Camille. <laughs> <laughs> Shut your mouth. <laughs> Bye. 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 We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse. The